Hello, everyone, and we welcome you to Soundtrack City. I'm Misa. And I'm Frankie. And if you have not joined us in Soundtrack City just yet, you picked a very good week to start. <laughs> oh, yes. Week three of spooky season. So excited. Yes, I'm I'm ready. I'm I know October's almost over and the cold is just now coming in, but I am enjoying my giant fuzzy hoodie and my fuzzy socks and all the fuzzy good warm feelings <laughs> of spooky season. Yes. Uh, spooky season just makes me so happy. It's my favorite. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Have you watched any scary movies lately aside from the ones that we are discussing? Um well, the one that I'm, of course, my number four pick, um, and then I am currently watching like a, it's not really a scary, but it's said it's supposed to be scary, series on Netflix, um, and then I did recently watch a kind of disturbing movie. I wouldn't call it a horror movie. Um, that one was weird. It's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I have heard about that, yeah. Um, it is not a horror. It's more of a psychological. It's fucking trippy. It's I I endured the whole thing. Tony Collette is amazing. Uh, I just I have questions. I have so many questions. Uh, so if you watched it, uh, hit me up because I need someone to chat with. <laughs> no one I know who no one I know has seen the whole thing. Like they've seen part of it, but it's it's a very slow movie. It's kind of hard to follow, and I just need someone to discuss. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. I've I've been hearing little like murmurs about it for the last few months, and I I wasn't sure what it was. It sounded like a teen drama just from the title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, what's this? I um, randomly saw it on like I follow this girl on TikTok who has like um, like horror or like um movies that really made me think or like just a whole bunch of series like that or like scary movies you've sent um, me these before right yes I've sent you a couple it's the redhead girl yeah yes her and so um some of her movies are pretty good um most of them are available on Netflix or like Hulu so great for us streamers um and so that was one that I was interested in because it is a book and so I was like okay cool like I can read the book also However, I'm not going to lie, after watching it, I was like, I don't really know if I want to read the book because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, based on the reviews, it's not much clearer. Mm, okay. So, I don't know. I And maybe I just wasn't in that right mindset to watch it. Mm-hmm. You know, you know how you got to be like, especially for movies like that, like it's a, it's a dark movie. It's, it's a dark psychological movie um it is about like disabilities and things like that it's 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 dark so okay okay I might have to uh to look that one up um yeah yeah yeah, I'm I'm curious now for sure I hadn't heard literally aside from the title I did not know anything about it until you just told me right now yeah well I mean even if you just watch it for Tony she's amazing oh she's She's amazing amazing. in ever I love her in uh Knives Out Oh my gosh, yes. 
I love where she's like, I love you guys. And she's like dancing. And, and she's no pulling on them, but they're like ignoring the fuck yeah, out of her. Yes. And she's like, oh, they just love me. We're such a close family. And it's like, oh. Yeah, no, at all. I love, I, I enjoyed that movie a lot. That was a really good movie. That's actually one of Taryn's favorites. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good yeah. one. It's a thinker. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, definitely uh, check that one out. I do like those kind of obscure, random movies, but um, that's, that one's interesting. And then the series is The um, Bly Manor, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Yes, that's the season two of Haunting of, uh, I guess, Hill House, right? Yes, but they're not actually they're not related. related. Right. right. Um, so this one is it's interesting. I'm, I'm only on episode four. Or I think we've been watching like an episode a night. Um, but I mean, so far, it's not, again, it's not necessarily scary. Um, I, I do have some questions, though. I feel like I watch it from a different perspective, though. Like, because I'm watching it with Angel. And I feel like we're not in the same mindset. Like me, I'm like, what is the backstory? What is happening? Like, I need more details. And he's like, there are ghosts. And I'm like, where, yes, you're right. There are ghosts. Why are there ghosts? So, like, what is their ghost backstory? What made them a ghost? Why are they trapped? And so we just see it from, like, different perspectives. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, I, again, I have questions. <laughs> Did you watch Haunting of Hill House first? I actually didn't. I did not. Um, and, again, I know we've talked about this last season for Spooky Season. I, in particular do not like scary movies that like actually make me kind of jump um I'm not a fan of that um so watching your movie was hard for me like I told you Mm -hmm. um but I found like my coping is I actually like research the movie while I'm watching movies like that so then that helps me not be like so scared like I have no problem with blood or gore or like people chopping each other up you know That doesn't bother me. It's like you jumping around the corner and saying boo. And I'm like, why? Why did you hear me? That is so funny, especially because I'm the complete opposite of that. Yeah, like I do not like being scared. I know it's crazy. So I don't like that like kind of shock thing. I, I much more like the psychological like chopping bodies. Oh, which is another movie I did watch. The House That Jack Built. That one was interesting. Hmm. Okay. I've heard of that one too. Yeah. You should check that one out. Yeah. I think I saw it. It might be on Shutter. I think it's on something that I stream with. So I'll, I'll double check. Okay. Yeah. 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 That was weird. Very good. <laughs> I get how you feel about not liking being scared, but Haunting of Hill House is actually, I would say a masterpiece. Well, then I definitely need to check it out, especially based on this because, um, and I'm so sorry, I'm blanking on the director's name, but so far I'm loving the way he films. Mike Flanagan? Thank you. Yes. He is amazing at using that dark space and just the way he does his shots and his camera angles, everything is so cohesive and he really utilizes every single angle and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely going to have to check out Hill House. Yeah, it's on my list. I think pretty much everything Mike Flanagan does is is pretty freaking beautiful. He did Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. Yes. He directed Hush, which is probably one of my favorite, like, newer kind of thriller horror movies on Netflix. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wrote and directed a lot of Haunting of Hill House. And I I loved Haunting of Hill House. I I was a little upset that like at the end of season one, I was like, oh, that's it for this story. They we're not gonna come back to these characters. But then I realized, like, you know, that is a pretty cohesive story. I don't think there's much else to tell, so it's okay. But it made me, that's what made me, like, sad was that, oh, I guess we're done with everybody now and everyone's going to be okay and go off and do their thing now. But I loved Haunting of Hill House. I thought it was brilliant. And um, I, I what what drew me in was that so many people kept saying, like, oh, it was so scary. Oh, it was, you know, da 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 and oh, it got me, and I was like, all right, let's see how big people are talking, right? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it's, there are some um, creepy images, but it's not scary. Uh, I didn't get, like, like, scared scared or really creeped out until the very last episode when everything culminated. I thought it was actually pretty good. It was a lot tamer than people made it out to be. Yeah, that's what I'll, I'll say that. Um, but then again, I guess that, that also depends on kind of what you were saying about like what your level of scared and horror is when it comes to watching things like that. To me, it, it was a lot more beautiful and emotional than it was horrifying. But there, See, that sounds right at my alley. There were some really um, like, you know, haunting parts there. I got to like, um, I watched it in the middle of the night. So I started it at like 10 o'clock at night. And I got to episode five, and they're each like an hour. And at the end of episode five, everything takes such an emotional turn. And I was in such tears that I I could not go on after episode five. I was like, okay, I'm going to close my computer. I'm going to go to sleep. And I had to take a day to recover emotionally before I could pick up again because it was such a sad episode. Wow. Just talking about it now, I'm like – Oh my God. It was so, it took me a moment to recover, but it, again, not horrifying, but just really made you think and feel. I'm definitely going to have to watch it. The way you described it, it's like completely up my alley. Please do. If you watch it, I want you to text me as you're watching it because it's just so, oh my gosh. If, I loved it. I loved it from beginning to end. There was nothing wrong with it at all. 10-10. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Absolutely. It's on the list. It's happening. It's done. Do it. It's do it. Okay. <laughs> so now, oh, let's get to it. Spooky season week three and you're going first. I am. And guys, I, I'm just, I'm so nervous. I feel like it was the universe's way of telling me like all these tech problems that we had. And then this is actually my first score. And so I was already really nervous because I was not prepared for how hard scores are to find information on. And Mm -hmm. so I already felt like I was going to be lackluster this week. And then again, all these tech problems and I was like, I just, I'm not meant to do a score. I'm not meant to do a score. I was really worried, but you know, that's just my nerves. We're fine. So I'm super excited about this movie. Um, I have watched it over and over again. I've talked to lots of people who have watched it so I could get like their insight. Um, And it is probably one of my more recent spooky movies, I guess, that I like. It is, to me, not your typical horror movie. 
and I know Misa agrees. Um, even the director has stated that he thinks this is actually more of like a breakup horror movie. And I can actually really see that. Um, there's just, to me, it's like almost a love story with some death. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I um, this movie was very heavily toted as a horror film when it was coming out. Mm-hmm. And I agree. It's to me, it's not. It's not horror first. Like even on IMDb, I think thriller comes before horror on the yeah, genre. I, yes. And even to me, like I think horror should be lower. I feel like it's more psychological. It's more um, drama, and it's a lot more um, suspense. But I mean, all elements of horror, of course. Um, but then I guess for the sake of like, there are also horrific images as well. And so I think that's what really puts it over the line. But yeah, I agree. I think everyone can describe it differently if you try to ask them what genre it is, because it's just so many things at once. Such a good point. And that's actually one of the things that I found when I asked different people how they would describe the genre of the movie, like no one truly agreed that it was just a straight horror movie, but they didn't agree in the order of where they would put horror um, for this genre. Um, but nonetheless, it is classified as a folk horror film. And today I am going to be covering the 2019 Ari Aster masterpiece, Midsommar. Yay! <laughs> I know, super exciting. Um, this is his second film that he wrote and directed. First is um, Hereditary. And this movie is almost like a complete opposite of from what Hereditary is, for those of you guys who've seen that. Um, Hereditary is very dark. Um, it's filmed very dark. Midsommar is complete opposite. It is total light. It is beautiful color. Um, I just and that's what made me fall in love with this movie. The colors, the way it's filmed, the detailing. Ari is a huge sucker for details, and I think that's why I very much so enjoy his movies. Um, this movie stars Florence Pugh, Jack Reiner, William Jackson Harper, and then lots of um, amazing Swedish and other names that I honestly don't know how to pronounce all of these names. Oh, let me try. Let me see. <laughs> Hold on. There's, there's, um, I can say some of them. Bjorn Andersen, Katarina Wildhagen, <laughs> Tove Skildvog. <laughs> uh, we got your classic Lars, you know, uh, Lars Varinger. Um, and then, of, of course, people mostly know, like, Will Potier. Did I say that right? He doesn't have Poltier? a Poltier? an I-E. Oh, he doesn't have. Oh, my bad. It's Poulter. All I care my about bad. is Wilhelm Blumgren. Let me read that. <laughs> he reminds me of Eddie Vedder. Wilhelm. <laughs> Ooh, I can see that. I can see that. So, yeah. So, this movie is pretty basic. It does have... Kind of a slow start. Um, basically, it is a group of friends who are traveling to Sweden. They're all in college. They're all in their master's program. And they are going to, some of them are going to cover their thesis on um, Midsummer. 
and one of their friends happens to be from Sweden and their town does a very special festival every 90 years. And so they're going to visit for that. And, you know, murder and death ensues. <laughs> and it turns into this great kind of amazing, like I said, folk, horror, love, suspense, drama, psychological movie. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of everything, right? It's kind of everything. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely like a um, an unsettling roller coaster of emotion. Yeah, definitely. So let's just talk a little bit about Ari. Like Ari Aster is an American film director and screenwriter. Like I said, this is only his second movie. He is from New York. Um, he actually originally was like a musician, and then he transitioned into film. Um, and he is a horror lover. So he is a collector as well as just wants to be like a new, I guess he would want to be like one of the, like a Wes Craven almost, like that's what his goal is. He said he wants to be one of the top like horror directors. So, um, you know, he only has two movies under his belt. He's definitely kind of a different type of horror than I would think like Wes Craven is in my mind. Um do you do you think he's like Wes Craven? I guess I should ask I, you. I agree with you. I think that um, I think Wes Craven has a very forward style of horror, whereas Ari Aster has a very slow burn mm-hmm. method. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, slow build too. Like mm-hmm. he has. Yeah. Um. So I I agree with that. Um. So yeah. And then he um did his masters with a focus in directing, and that's when he like fell in love with directing and. He went ahead and he worked on his first two movies. Um, and just a little bit of background information on Ari. He did write Midsommar when he was going through his own personal breakup. And so that's why there are some of those aspects in the movie. This movie um, did fare well. It has some pretty good reviews. It grossed $47 million And overall, it received mostly positive reviews from critics, um, praising Astor's direction and Florence's performance. So this is one of her most amazing performances in all of her films. And I will be honest, this is her only film that I've seen. So I don't have any comparison. I'm not sure if you've seen any of her movies. Uh, let me, I'm looking at her uh, thing here. No, I don't think I have. She's, it looks like she's been in some notable things that have just kind of slipped by me like little women apparently yeah yeah and I don't even remember her in that so I was like oh I definitely need to go back and rewatch that and look for her she's gonna um, be in Black Widow yes she is she's gonna play the sister right uh I don't I saw a name with a y and I, <laughs> I was like nope <laughs> Russian I guess yeah so yeah that's yeah, right Yes, I'm pretty sure she's going to play the sister. So, yeah, I am excited to see her in that. But um, this is the only film I've seen her. And I will say that I think she did really well for this movie. I think she was perfect for the way they wanted Danny, that's her um, character, to be played very um, emotional and able to capture that on her face. I would definitely say she's, like, an amazing method actor. Like, her ability to draw on those emotions is dead like she's right on it her ugly cry is phenomenal (laughs) (laughs) so I mean 
she's got it. Um, I can't wait to see her in Black Widow, though. Um, this uh, movie did win a couple of awards, and it was nominated for some. Um, she, they were nominated for Gotham Independent Film Awards in 2019 for Best Actress and Best Screenplay, um, Hollywood Critics Association for Best Horror, um, Independent Spirits for Best Cinematography, and um, Florence did win for the Virtuoso Award in 2020 at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival for this movie, for her role as Danny. So, um, and one thing that I thought was interesting, I know we've talked a lot about Jordan Peele and how he's really taking on the horror scene. He is most notably said to say that it had the most atrociously disturbing imagery that he's ever seen on film and that he loves the tie-in to Wicker Man from he quotes the most iconic pagan movie. Yeah. Have you seen Wicker Man? I have actually. Would you agree? I definitely would. I can totally see some of, I mean, even some of the similarities, like with the filming, some of the storyline. Um, I absolutely agree. Have you seen Wicker Man or no? No. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I was actually really surprised that Nicolas Cage was in that one, but you know. Oh, you've seen the remake. I, yes, I only saw the remake. I'm sorry, I didn't specify. I've only seen the remake. I haven't seen the original. Okay, I haven't seen either. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know. I actually don't know how closely they're related to the original, so I don't even have any like input on that. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely on my list. Most of them are on my list, but I just... It's it's not a DVD that I come across on a shelf randomly, and I it's not streaming typically anywhere. So I'm like, okay, it's just going to be on my list somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that one's hard to find. I don't even remember when. I feel like I watched that on, like, VHS or DVD, like, years ago. Yeah. 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 So, so anyways, um, like I said, it fared well, um, and it also is very well known for its score, which I'm super excited to cover. I am very nervous. Um, <laughs> Why are you nervous? Because you just haven't done one before? I haven't done one. And there's just so much like, I don't know. I don't know how much I can say. I feel like it's going to be super short on my end, but that's okay. It's okay. We all have short ones every now and then. Um, so Ari approached Bobby Krillick, who goes by his stage name, the Hacks and Cloak. Um, he is a British musician and record producer to do the score for his movie. What I love is that on all my research, they literally worked side by side for the film. And so every single song was specifically written for the scenes. And um, if Ari didn't feel like something fit, then Bobby would go and fix it. And same thing, like they had a very, very close-knit relationship while they were putting the songs together with the filming. Um, Bobby even said in several interviews as I was researching that Ari would be like, ooh, we need something to fill in like as Danny's turning her face, like a little flutter. And then Bobby would quickly go and like do his music magic and then they would get something for that part. Um, they said that it, everything was very natural and organic and... I think that's why I love the music in this film so much. Bobby is a genius and is able to just take what is happening in the movie and completely match it with the music. 
and then it gets in your head even more and then like it's a whole body experience. And I think that is completely why I love that soundtrack. And even I made Angel watch this with me. Um, and even he was like, that music is crazy. He was like, mm-hmm. it, it's, um, he was like, I, I can't, he actually texted me like the day after he watched it. And he was like, I can't stop thinking about this one song because it's, it just, the way Bobby composes is, it's amazing. And everything matches the movie wonderfully. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump in to our music. I'm so nervous. Oh my god, you're like me when I did Psycho for the first time. What you know, uh, once you do it the first time, it'll be it's like anything else. Once you do it the first time, you'll be like, Oh, I want to do that again, like getting on stage, hyperventilating. Okay, okay, don't so, hypervent, just I'm sorry, deep breath, okay, deep breath. You okay. got this. I got this. I got this. Okay. So we open up on this amazing light and fresh kind of um, cherubic vocals and harp strum. It literally made me think of Snow White. And we see this amazing mural pop up on the screen. Um, In the mural, there are actually five different panels. And it is a very quick flash of the mural. So I actually had to pause it and really look at it. Um, in the first part, we see a skull with snow. And it looks like a person with all these like attachments, almost like umbilical cords, if you will, to um, death and different bodies. There's black sparrows. It's very dark and very different than the last panel. The second one, we see someone crying. Um, And we see like a weird figure up in the top of trees with birds. The third one has um, people walking, following a flutist with a jester's hat on. Um, And then we see people going in through what looks like a little um, sun monument, approaching people in white gowns. Um, And there are some angels and there's a chair up in the sky. Um, And then we see in the last panel, it is fully bright. There's a giant smiling sun. And everyone looks so happy and so excited to be dancing around this uh, maypole. Um, And so, like I said, this flashes on very quickly and we get this beautiful song. Um, It literally sets the tone for this picture. And it makes you think like everything's going to be so sweet. And it matches how bright the picture is. And then almost Instantly, it turns into this dark, snowy, frozen scene. And that is the song Prophecy. The way that Bobby scored this scene is he really wanted something that started you off with a very cheery and almost romantic piece to kind of completely shock you for the next scenes that come up. Um, It literally is like he took strings and harps and all those beautiful, soft, light notes to be like, oh, I'm not watching a horror movie, which I think is why we do think it's almost like a love movie or has that love feeling in it. Um, Did you pay attention to that first picture that comes up on the screen when you were watching it? Uh, Well, it is really brief, but I did 
watch a bunch of like reviews of the movie. Of course you did. <laughs> and um, they, I mean, they're everywhere. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so, yeah, it, there was like a lot of people did kind of pause it and freeze frame it for you so you could get see it better. And then they explained like what each panel was or like at least their interpretations of what each panel was. Yes, definitely. Um, so my friend or my coworker who watched it, um, she was like, at first I thought I picked the wrong movie because it was so like sweet and loving and I she was like it makes you feel like you're watching a Disney movie and you um then she was like but then the next scene I was like oh no this must be right so <laughs> oh that's great so yeah so we get this change like I said into winter we're somewhere where it's snowing and we see our main character Danny um she's on the phone with her boyfriend saying like she hasn't spoken to her sister she's worried and he's kind of talking her down he's like you always do this you always worry about her like it's fine. And Danny explains like, well, she's bipolar. Like I have to be worried. Um, and he basically tells her like she's overreacting and she finally is like, you're right. You're right. And just lets it go. Um, then we see that she sends her sister an email and her boyfriend at the same time, um, we get a, a split screen to see her boyfriend Christian with his friends at a dinner and they're talking about how unhappy Christian is and they start talking about Sweden and how they're going to have all these Swedish babes and you know one of his asshole friends is like you could be impregnating this girl um <laughs> and <laughs> yeah he's definitely like that that comic relief in the movie but he's uh, also such a dick oh my god I know I know like such a dick I'm like you're ignorant <laughs> mm -hmm. and you see that right away so anyways we then see um flashback to danny and she gets a call from an unknown number she picks up and then we immediately see christian get a call from her and of course his friend's like scoffing like is she seriously calling you again this is abuse and he answers and we hear her voice screaming and it is that like deep moaning painful screaming and we are also hearing acrylics for gassed this song is probably one of the most agonizing songs in this film it um takes us to where we see Danny is being told that her family is dead. Her sister has committed suicide after killing her parents by carbon monoxide. And her sister literally has like basically a tube running from the car exhaust pipe all the way through the house and it's taped to her face. So she's sucking in this carbon monoxide. And we are watching this with these drastic agonizing strings like they're so sharp and they sound like nails on chalkboards um the sobs from danny of agony are colliding with those violins the song is very drastic and it completely changes from that light-hearted song that we just heard and shows just how dramatic this scene is this song is literally that audible representation of trauma and panic and grief. And we hear the pain 
in the song as well as in Danny's sobs. The song is almost haunting. If you listen to it without the movie, it's kind of hard to actually listen to the whole thing. It is a constant clashing of um, minor and major chords on the strings. Um, and the strings are holding these notes to these long, long notes. And it just creates this amazingly beautiful, dramatic chaos. I don't know how to explain it any other, any other way. It's, it's, it's beautiful, but it is dark and it is perfectly matched for this scene. We do have some drums that come in um, and I researched those. They are actually a Chinese, like an ancient bass drum used in Chinese culture called a tangu. And it creates this deep kind of bassy sound that matches the lows and highs of those drawn out string sounds. Um, it also gives it a very dark effect and then acrylic then match that with this really cool like modern synth that made a very echoey sound and made the whole scene just it was so dark and beautiful even though we're seeing people you know dying in their sleep and uh, someone with a mask of carbon uh, monoxide strapped to their face and so this is a very hard scene for Danny to deal with and she is just distraught um, and we see that she's trying to make it through this traumatic experience and the next scene like Christian sees that she's awake and he's like oh hey I'm gonna go to a party for a little bit and um, you know doesn't think to ask her or invite her uh, doesn't even really seem to be like checking in on her um, just kind of like, oh, you're awake. Oh, okay, so I'm going to go to this party. And she's like, oh, I'll come with you. And he almost tries to, like, talk her out of it. But she looks like she's ready to try to kind of start that healing process, if you will, like to kind of leave the room and deal with her grief in a different way. So at this party, she is told that Christian and his friends are going to Sweden, even though we already know this in the audience because it was introduced right away. So it becomes very apparent that Christian is not happy in this relationship with Danny. And Danny is kind of like holding on to those strings of their relationship, if you will. Um, yeah. And um, to me, it is also very apparent that Christian's kind of like trying to be that asshole, like that um, kind of undercover asshole to like have Danny end things. Um and even to the point like where he possibly wanted to end things and then this huge incident happened. So now he can't be the one to break up with her because then he would really be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, like who breaks up with the girl who whose family just died? Yeah, like literally her whole family died. So like not only would you be just an asshole, you'd be the biggest asshole in the world. So question, does he get op like does he get like kind of like pseudo credit for not wanting to be the asshole who breaks up with a girl with a dead family. 
I do think he gets pseudo credit for that because I mean, really, we we all know that there's a person who would be like, I don't care, I didn't kill her family, we're done. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So I feel like he does get credit for that, but I do feel like he kind of was still being an asshole by being like, I don't know, rude and you know, kind of like making her be the bad person. Like maybe if I treat her this way, she'll end things. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like that kind of asshole. So anyways, they go to the party. That's when she learns that they're going to Sweden. And she she handles it really well. She doesn't really bring it up until they're home later. And then, of course, he, like, totally gaslights her, makes it her fault. Like, I, you know, I did, I mentioned it to you to the point where that she's been apologizing for even bringing something up that he didn't mention to her, um, you know, about him totally leaving the country and, you know. That's that's kind of a big deal, at least to me. I would be upset if I was dating someone for four years and they didn't tell me they were going out of the country. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, I feel like all these little things kind of point to how, just how much he wanted out. Like, he didn't tell her about Sweden because he thought he would break up with her by then. Mm-hmm. But then, like, and then also before, like you were saying, like, he went in to see if she was asleep so he could go to the party. He was hoping she'd be asleep so he wouldn't have to tell her about the party. Like, shit like that. Yes, I completely agree with you. It's those little things, and I guess, you know, people who have always been in healthy relationships, yay for you, you don't honestly catch on to these things, but these little things can start to seriously break apart your psyche as a person. And psychological abuse and emotional abuse, I think it's almost more permanently scarring and detrimental than physical abuse can be. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, I'm not a professional in that. I just wanted to state my opinion. So anyways, they she apologizes for bringing it up. And then a couple of days go by and he, like, invites her even though he doesn't want her to go. And he does prep his friends and he's like, hey, I just want you to know, like, I invited her. Um, She's not going. But, you know, I had to. I had to invite her. And at first, his friends are just kind of like, okay. I do feel like Josh and Pele, of course, are like, you know, it's fine for her to go. But Mark, who is played by Will Poulter, and he's the asshole kind of arrogant, whatever you want to call him. He hasn't called the comic relief, but he he's very much ignorant. Um, they're both kind of like, you know, I don't really care if she comes. Are you sure she doesn't want to come? And in particular, Pele seems like he really does want her to come. Um, and you catch on to that right away. Like he starts to show her some pictures and he shows her like something that he's drawing and he's like, I- I'm so happy you're coming. Um, and then he apologizes about her loss and everything. And she is still dealing with that, and so we see her kind of go into the bathroom, and then we see her on the plane with everyone, and eventually they land in Sweden. And when they first get there, they see a bunch of people, and it looks like all of these people are coming from the same commune, if you will, and everyone like has a couple friends that they're bringing. This is when we're introduced to Pele's brother, and we see some of our other characters that play some important roles, Simon and Connie who are introduced to the group by Pele's um, brother, Ingmar. 
and they do shrooms and they have all these awesome hallucinations kind of except for some of them <laughs> and I think this is where um, you were saying that this is like one of the scarier moments for you like to have a bad trip oh this is like okay all right guys I'm gonna be honest <laughs> I'm I'm not a terribly big fan of Midsummer, but I did watch it a few times because I knew Frankie was gonna cover it and I watched it First, I watched it like just to watch it. Then I watched it to see the details. Then one day I just watched it, but I didn't actually watch it. I had it on on a tab so I could just listen to the dialogue and the score while I did other things. Mm-hmm. And so like I I went back and watched it in different ways. And the, I get that the that what Ari Aster was going for is like he wanted you to feel very unsettled throughout Mm -hmm. the film like that's part of the reason why you're upside down when you're going into Sweden and I I get that but I think like the ways that the movie unsettles me are very I think I think different than what he intended one example would be like I I kind of can't stand Danny and her boyfriend like why I get it you're pissed that he didn't tell you about Sweden but why would you even want to go to like you're grieving? Do you think you're gonna have fun? Do you think you're gonna be much fun? Like I just I would not I would not have done the same thing. But then then they take shrooms, right? And I'm gonna be honest again, guys. I have some experience with psychedelics, and I've referred to this before. And most recently, I have not had good experiences. I'm not deterring anyone from trying it of course I will I will do acid again someday but a bad trip is for fucking real and I can tell you that from experience and that's one of the things I was telling Frankie when we did like a I guess a pre-discussion on this on this episode so that we could get all of our shit together because we had all these technical difficulties (laughs) all of them um, but one of the things that we touched upon was that to I know I said that to me this movie isn't primarily horror, but the ways that it horrifies me are 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 so subtle that and 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 one way that it, it really makes me uncomfortable is when Danny starts to have a bad trip and she, because uh, they're sitting in the grass and she thinks that she's becoming the earth and mm-hmm. and then Mark says the word family and she flips out because then she remembers like, oh, right, I don't have one. And then she starts freaking out and she, she thinks people are laughing at her and she's like, you can hear her breathing really hard and and she's getting kind of paranoid and she's just trying to walk around and talk to herself and calm herself down and tell her, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay that shit's for real. Like when you are on a psychedelic and something throws you off your vibe or if you're you're feeling good and then one negative word or one slight doubt will just turn everything on its head so fucking fast and sometimes there's really no way out of the mind. You just have to sit in the darkness and the uncertainty and the scariness of it all. And so that for me, when Danny starts flipping out on shrooms, that for me 
it makes all those bad feelings come back and like the darkness comes back. And guys, I had a bad trip. So that, that to me, that part in the movie made me uncomfortable. I can definitely understand that. This is, you do see how vulnerable Danny is. And I do agree with you. Um, Ari definitely wanted you to feel unsettled and uncomfortable. Um, I think he also wanted to show just how big um, the psychedelic drugs, because they are throughout the whole movie, um, how they can kind of turn your conceptions of things and how they can make some people react in different ways. Like you said, based on that mindset, based on that single lingering seed of doubt or anything like that, like it can create that ripple effect to have a really bad trip and create bad things happening within the movie. And so I definitely think that, especially the vulnerability, I think he liked to play on that also in this movie of when people were under the influence. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because there is a sense of like, I mean, there's a reason you, they call it under the influence is because you're not all there. You're not all you. There is something else kind of taking shape in you and it can affect your thoughts and your actions and your feelings. Definitely, definitely. So after Danny has this very emotional um, trip, she does pass out. The group finds her. They said that she's been sleeping for like six hours and this is when they start their walk from this area into Harga. And we see them walking. It's kind of a long walk. We see an overview of like these trees. And we start to hear this beautiful kind of soft light strings coming in. As soon as the group walks into the entrance, it's like this giant wooden sun. And we get this open and airy, very welcoming, beautiful music with lots of undertones that make the sounds very enchanting. This is Krillik's song, The House That Harga Built. And we are walking into Pele's commune. We are greeted by these men and women in like very traditional garb. It's all white, of course with these like beautiful intricate embroidery patterns with these like ancient runes and their letters on them. Everybody is just so happy. It's almost like things have gotten very dark and then as they landed in Sweden it was a little bit lighter and then as they're walking towards Harga the trees are opening up but then once they reach Harga and they walk in through that sun it's literally like this giant blast of light and everything is so bright and so happy the colors are soft and just almost pure right here like everything is just like you would think nothing ever goes wrong here because everything like the white clothing is so like my mind goes to how does no one have a stain on their clothes because everything, and I know that's totally off topic. Of course, of course, that's where your mind goes. Right, I'm like, how does no one have stains? There are children running around in the dirt in white. How is everyone perfectly clean? Like, Because the dirty ones die. <laughs> and there you go. Everyone is like literally so happy to see all these people coming in to visit them. They have this cute little like acoustic 
weed band playing for them. Everyone's like helping with chores and running around. And it's just, it's like so different than what we're used to. Like there's no technology. The houses are obviously like built by hand. Um, There's animals. We see a bear. There's these really weird but beautiful paintings and murals around. And then we see gardens and stuff like that. And it's just, it's very different and very open from what the rest of the movie is. And the music that Krillik has here is just, it, it's, it's perfect for the scene. We have harps that are interloping with those violins and the strings. There's also some acoustic guitar in here that plays some like tritone chords. So we get those three really pretty like harmonious chords but there's still an air of mystery. So even though we have this kind of light, very um, enchanting, beautiful music, if you truly listen to it, there's some underlying haunting, mysterious vibes, um, which is played by the cello specifically, if you're listening to the song. Um, And that cello brings in kind of those minor scales, and that's what makes it kind of like, Ooh, I like this, but at the same time, something doesn't feel right. And I think that is the appropriate response (laughs) for you walking into what is obviously a cult. Ari literally spent like a year researching different cults. Oh, I bet that was fun. I know. And Fascinating. Like, I know. I want to know, like, his exact notes. I haven't been able to find all of his, like, notes. But he he did literally, I guess I'm going to throw a fun fact in here. He literally spent a year researching specifically Sweden and Viking cults and lifestyles from the early 1600s to current. And while there is no exact cult that matches Harga, he really did his research, which is another thing I like about him. Like, it's those details that we talked about that make movies so, like, oh, I just want to eat it up and, like, research everything, too, because there's just so many details that he paid attention to. Even the ruins, the the words that are on everyone's um, clothing mean something about that person. And that's why they were chosen with that. Like it's, it's, it's very intricate and I love it. Okay. So our friends get settled in. Everyone is um, going into like this giant commune area to sleep in. And it's like a giant kind of um, dorm, almost like a giant room, one room with all these beds. And we see Danny and everyone looking at all these amazing pictures that are painted on the walls. And some of them are kind of graphic like one in particular, you see a mural of uh, a girl bleeding and she is mixing her period blood <laughs> into a liquid and then giving it to uh, a man drawing. And then they show them in love with babies. <laughs> it's, it's weird. So that's where they come from. Yes. Got it. It's the period blood drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very unsettling. <laughs> Um, yeah, Ari's gross too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we see all these really cool, like um, very stylistic drawings on the walls. And um, if you pay attention, it's kind of interesting to see which character sleeps where. Um, and if you look at these drawings, it does actually kind of foreshadow what happens to that character if you go back and rewatch it. 
So without giving away too much detail, because I, I literally could tell you like every second of this movie. Um, after they get settled in, we have this feast and we see all of them eat outside and we start to see some of their kind of very particular traditions that this cult has. Um, they all sit together in this kind of crisscrossy pattern. They all stand until one of the elders or whoever the guest of honor sits. We get introduced to these two elders who are very special to the ceremony that's going to happen because they have reached the age of 72. And this is a very special age in Harga. And they're dressed in different clothing than everyone. They're the ones who take these like special shots where they hold it to like each other's shoulders and then they go <sighs> like this weird breathing thing, which I, I couldn't find much on that, like what that means. It's weird, <laughs> in my opinion. I'd much rather have elbow sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so we see um, all of these kind of, like I said, very specific traditions happening for this festival that's going on. Pele tells them that they're getting ready to go to Atsupa. It's obvious that Christian and Josh were aware, especially Josh, because he actually asked, are we going to Atsupa? And then Christian kind of looks at him and you see a moment. And I think it's because they're both anthropology students. And again, this is kind of what they're doing their thesis on. So they have some idea of what's going to happen, but I don't know if they have a complete idea of what's going on. Danny is obviously very much in the dark and she doesn't know what's going on. So she's just along for the ride. And we get to a whole different area. Everyone has walked over to this beautiful white rock, kind of like a mountain, all these mountains of rocks. And we see the entire cult and then all of our guests standing there looking up. And as they're looking up, we start to hear these soft strings come in. And we see the elders being brought in on these chairs by the other people in the cult. Part of the ritual is that they get their hands cut and they go and smear them on these ancient rocks. And if you kind of pan to the side, you can see all of the rocks of the elders before them with their blood smeared on it, on top of that um, ancient runes. Then we have our kind of main woman leader. She's reading from this ancient book and everyone's just kind of waiting for something to happen. The music starts to build. It starts to get louder and more chaotic. And then the camera focuses on Danny, who gasps right after the elder woman has made eye contact with her as she throws herself off the cliff onto this bottom rock. She's instantly dead. Her face is smashed in and they show different angles of her face. And it's like this gooey, kind of like a prosthetic face, I guess. It doesn't mm -hmm. even look like a face anymore. Um, and it's 
it's really crazy cool how they show the different angles and just like the different bones and blood and splattered. Danny is obviously like, what the fuck? Um, we hear them, like we don't hear the voices from the people, but we see their reactions from the visitors. Connie and Simon, our English friends who are brought in by Ingmar, they're like, what the, f-? like they literally are vocalizing their just disbelief. But the music is so loud and chaotic over all of this. And the crowd from the cult is just standing there, smiling, looking up, unfazed. And you as the watcher are like, what is going on? What is happening? Then we see our next elder jump off as the music builds and then it stops. This song was very hard for me to actually find much information about. This song is a collection of those violins and cellos, and it's that building the crescendo of our violins. And then as they build and build and build, we get this chaotic cello and this very soft kind of drum underlining um, that gives that bass and this building, 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 building until it just stops when our elder man jumps off and when he does jump and hits the rock we realize that he doesn't die right away and so does the crowd as the crowd realizes he's not dead they start to copy and mimic his moans from his pain and we see another ritual where they take a giant mallet and smash his face in until he is officially dead and this is when the crowd stops screaming and emulating that pain also our visitors are just absolutely distraught and our elder runs over and explains that here in Harga, we believe that as people reach 72, instead of wasting away, we give our lives. And then that cycle starts over and people are like, like Simon and Connie, just they can't understand. And actually, I was really surprised at how Danny handled this. I'm surprised she didn't run away and leave. But as she's like, it seems like she's really trying to listen to what the elder is explaining to them her name is Siv by the way she's explaining that this is very normal and it's almost a beautiful thing because they're giving their lives they're like donating their lives and then that name of that person is carried over and the entire community grieves together for everyone who might be in pain but this is better and more dignified than just wasting away and you kind of see Danny like taking that in for a second. Then we see the entire crowd walking back and we see uh, Christian and Josh run ahead. And this is when they have like their little bitch fight about who's going to cover Harga as the thesis. And so they're completely distracted. Danny has to go take a moment because she literally is like trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And this is the next part is probably my favorite scene. Pele goes and finds her. And he's like trying to talk her down. And she's like, I just don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. And he's like, I wanted you to be here. Like, I understand what you're feeling. And um, one of my favorite things that he, his entire lines is he asks her, do you feel held by him? Does he feel like home to you? And I don't know why, but that line just stuck with me. Very, that's more of a personal thing for me because of like past things 
Like, you should never stay with someone who doesn't truly feel like you're safe. Like, you're, you can be every single emotion in the world and they've, they've got you. Like, it doesn't matter if you're bawling and crying and distraught or if you're angry. Like, they are completely by your side. And I, and I don't know if that's completely wrong, but that's how I take it because of my personal schema. So that was a very, uh, I, I love this moment. Um, we then see some more things happen between our friends and uh, they start researching like more of the cult and we see some of our friends go missing without giving away too much information. Uh, I realized I was giving away too much. I'm sorry, Lisa. Um. I don't. I think it's pretty obvious that we talk spoilers on this podcast. I know, but I don't want to give away everything. I guess. Um, so we do see that Christian and Josh are just completely working now on the cult. Like they want to know more about it. They only care about the thesis. They don't particularly care about you know the bloodshed or things like that. Like they seem very unbothered by it. Danny is trying to deal with all this and she tries to go to Christian to like talk to him about how supposedly Simon left Connie um, and he's just he's too busy he wants to talk about like incest in the cult and so she starts to walk away and they call her over the other women to go and help like make lunch Um, and so she helps make these meat pies and then we see everyone sitting down for lunch and if you notice Christian's drink is a different color yeah is there period blood in it yes yes there is there is it's a completely different color from everyone else's and of course he doesn't seem to notice however it's quite obvious um we see some different tensions growing between everyone um particularly about how simon left connie and then this is when we see danny start to grow a little balls because she was like I can see you doing that to Christian. He's like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? And then he drinks the period blood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'll show her. I mean, come on. What what does he mean? What do you mean? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. That is totally something he would do. That's literally what he did. That's literally what he almost did. Yeah, 100%. He just doesn't want to admit it. And he's just pissed off because she called him out on it. Then he takes a bite of his little meat pie and he pulls out a hair, which is a pube. Of course, our asshole friend Mark, who's already pissed off the entire commune because he pissed on the ancestral tree, um, like starts talking about, oh my God, there's a pube in your meat. Like, that's disgusting. You didn't ask for a hair pie. (laughs) Um, Just being an asshole. And then all of a sudden, one of the cult girls is like, hey, come with me. And so, of course, he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go with her. Um, and we don't see him anymore. So we don't really know what's going on with him after that. And later that night, after everyone has gone to sleep, we see Josh sneaking into this sacred temple area and he sees these books and he's trying to take pictures. As someone walks in, he thinks it's Mark who they didn't know where he went. And then all of a sudden, Josh is hit over the head, and that person walks over to Mark, and we see that it's Mark's face, but it's on someone else's body, which is quite crazy. We then hear 
the next day, like they announced like, hey, your friends are missing. And so it's like one of our very ancient books, you know, it's very like high coincidence, like this is, this is crazy. Um, and so Pele starts to go find it. And then this is just another example of how like Christian is an asshole, but he's like, we don't associate with them. Like we're not even really their friends. Like he completely throws Josh and Mark under the bus. And even though Mark is an asshole and he deserves it, like Danny's just staring at him in just utter disbelief because he's being a complete asshole. And just that scene made me mad because I was like, what kind of friend are you? Like just completely disregarded. He was like, we're not even friends with them. And like you literally traveled across the world with them. How are they not your friends? Right. So at this point, we see our elders tell Danny that she's going to go with the women to do the maple dance while Christian goes and talks to one of the elders. Um, Danny is given some very uh, hallucinating tea, and they do that little shoulder thing again and do their breathing, and all the women are there. And they tell a little story about how they dance to the death and they do their dances around the maypole. And at the very end, she like starts speaking Swedish to them. And she's like, at first she's hallucinating and seeing like her feet become one with the earth again, um, which is repetitive from her hands earlier. And she starts to see like even her mom in the girls as they're dancing. And then you hear her like start breathing really heavy. And then all of a sudden, Danny is crowned the May Queen. We're also seeing during this time that Christian is being asked by the elders to mate or give his seed to one of their girls there who has just been given kind of like her pants license. So her ability to have sex. And so we see him dealing with that. We see more of that disconnect during the scene because Danny's actually for once having fun. Like this was one of my favorite scenes because Danny's dancing and we saw her worried at first, like very um, nervous. But then as she really is dancing, like she feels, it looks like she's enjoying herself with the girls dancing. Like she, she feels like almost one with them. Like they're her friends. Like she's laughing. Like I said, she's speaking in Swedish. And then she's kind of like looking at Christian, like, look, I made it to like the last couple. And he's like completely distracted by the idea of fucking the girl off to the side. Um, and this, this song that plays, it's called The Blessing. This beautiful song, The Blessing, Krillick was very, very specific about the way he wanted the song. He wanted this song to leave us with this fullness, this euphoric fullness, if you will. Um, this music is in the time signature 6-8, and so it creates this very much like a swaying, like a waltzy feeling almost. Um, and it's very euphoric because there are three part harmonies in the violins, and the dynamics in the song cause it to build and then go down and then build and then go down. And it just creates this overwhelming sense of feeling to us as the audience as we're watching Danny go and um, bless the crops. And, you know, she's a little worried because they won't let Kristen come with her, but she does 
we see her smiling and feeling very happy while she's doing these festivities. And again, the group is like, you are family, you're my sister, like just very um, overwhelmingly accepting of Danny, which we kind of feel like she needs at this moment in her life. At the same time, Christian is being led to go and donate his seed to Maya, his person that he was told he's going to get to have sex with. And so it's kind of interesting that they did this song right at the same time, but it is mostly for us to see how Danny is also feeling very full and happy at this moment. There's also a little bit of the vibraphone being used in the song, and so it creates kind of this um, airy wooden sound that we hear, and it just, it makes us happy. Like, there's just this really amazing sense of happiness in the song. Very specific and very purposeful with his instrument choice and the dynamics, which is what makes Krillick amazing. So after Danny blesses all of these props and she's done with her May queen duties, um, she starts to walk back and she hears like this weird moaning sound, which is this, this whole sex scene is very awkward to me. Um, but again, it emulates the cold. So weird, right? Yeah, it's um, not it's a little... It's it's definitely not a it's not a it's not a hot sex scene. Ew, no. <laughs> it's not, I don't I mean I don't think so. Maybe some people are into it, but it's not. But it's it's bizarre. It's, it's bizarre. Uh, Ari did great making this bizarre. Okay, I will give him credit for that. So we see Danny, and she's like, "Well, what is that?" And one of the girls is like, "That's not for us." And Danny goes back over, and is like determined. To go and see what's over there. And the girl is like, I think you should not. But of course, stubborn American. She does it anyways. And she sees her boyfriend screwing this girl. And she gets violently sick and throws up and has this very much screaming fit. And again, that cult shows us how they take emotions as one. Like if, if Nisa is sad, I am sad with Nisa. And we are going to get through that sadness together as a group um, because we don't leave people alone when they're emotional and that's how Danny is dealing with this emotional scene we see a group of women like crying and screaming like Danny is at the same time it seems like Christian has come to from his hallucinated state he realizes what he's doing he runs out he's naked he realizes he's naked and he's trying to find somewhere to go he runs to a barn and of course Christian sees Simon, who is still breathing with flowers in his eyes, but his lungs are taken out and like clipped with these almost like fishing hooks and strings. And his whole body is hung up in the air in this barn. And then he gets blown something into his eyes and then he falls and all these elders are there. And this is when we see darkness. and. Someone is trying to wake up Christian, and she has this beautiful voice as she tells him, There you are. Okay, listen. You can't move. You can't talk. Okay. And then walks away. 
And I'm kind of like, okay, I guess I can't be mad because of the way you told me. <laughs> yeah, it was so soothing and yet alarming. Right, right. We see Danny on stage as the Mayflower Queen. And this is when we get more information about the sacrifices that Harga uh, does every 90 years. And they give nine bodies, four of their own, four um, visitors that are brought in. And then the Mayflower Queen gets to choose the last body. They talk about who has been chosen from the two volunteers in addition to our two elders that have already jumped off. Our four visitors, we learn, are Simon, Connie, Mark, and Josh. Um, so those are all covered, thanks to Pele and his brother. And then Danny gets to decide if the last person is going to be a already pre-selected person from the village or Christian. We don't see her make her choice. But then we see them start to cut open this bear carcass. And then we see Christian sewed up into the bear carcass, which leads us to believe that she has chosen Christian. And as they are starting to will these bodies in, this song, Fire Temple, starts to play. This song starts off very soft, as do most acrylic songs. We see the bodies being taken into the temple. We see them quickly start to get them all set up, and we see the live people in. We see the doors close as they start to set the straw in, and this is where our strings start to build. We then see the people standing all around this yellow temple with all these flames and we know the bodies are in there and then we start to hear the screams as the music builds and builds and we get these screeching high strings from the violins we get these undertones from the drums we get this very chaotic sound and then we look at the crowd and everyone is screaming and crying along with those dying in the temple People are like literally pulsating and it looks like everyone's possessed and just getting all of that emotion out. And this is something that Harga teaches their people. Like we don't hold on to these emotions. We express them. We deal with them. Um, we do this together in a sense of unity. And the music completely matches this chaos that we're seeing. And then we zoom in on Danny, and she looks at first completely distraught, which matches all this chaos in these building strings with their very minor and shrieking notes. And then the music softens, and we get this close-up of Danny, and she has tears flowing down her face. And then the song starts to hit these beautiful high pinging notes as Danny smiles and looks around 
and realizes that she has found her new family and her peace. And that is how our movie ends. This scene is one of the most important in the movie because it shows us how Danny initially looked at the cult and everything with horror and just not understanding. And it starts to make us think about how she was the beginning. She was alone in her grief. But at the end, even though she's lost Christian, she's not alone. She has people who are sharing that grief with her, who are making her feel normal and not a burden and something that has to be done. Um, she's also sharing her joy and celebration that all these people in her life have failed to fill for her. So she was feeling very alone and isolated. And then we get to see this amazing transformation for Danny because she realizes that there is hope and she's not alone and she's finally free of all these toxic people and their beliefs. I know a lot of people don't truly understand this part because they're like, is she a psycho? Like, did she want him to die? But um, I mean, even Angel was like, I feel bad for him. He didn't have a choice. And I was like, um, yes, he did. Because he wasn't like he chose to agree to procreate with the cult girl. And he chose to take the drink that he asked what was in it. And she told him it had hallucinogens and he still took it. Like he chose that path. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, if you're going to choose things like that, like there are consequences to every path we choose. I just think that this, this song is just, it's so beautiful and it matches everything we want. Like I said, it's got that beautiful, like chaos, but then it ends with this beautiful swell and erupting of happiness. And we finally see Danny truly, truly happy and just a complete different character. Um, so yeah, and that is the end of Midsummer and um, Ari Aster and Bobby Krillick's amazing music and score. That just, it makes me so happy, friends. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't so bad, was it? You did I good. Did I researched a lot on music and things like that. So I hope I did it justice. I apologize if it wasn't up to some of y'all's um, you know, musical par. Um, I am not in orchestra. I was never in band. Um, I'm just a music lover. So, <laughs> so I did want to talk about, I kind of already talked about some interesting facts and everything, fun facts hearing, but I did find some really cool theories and you know, I'm a sucker for conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. So I had to talk about one. There really is one in particular that stood out to me. And I didn't mention this much in my kind of synopsis just because it didn't really matter in those important moments. But as Christian and Josh are researching for their thesis, they get told that there is a person in the village who is an oracle. And the oracle is the person who the gods speak to. He's It's the enlightened person. And currently, that is Reuben. He is... Um, disabled mentally and he doesn't write but he draws and we learn a little bit about him there's a theory though that Pele is the next 
oracle in line because of the fact that he um, is drawing at some points just like Reuben is, and he seems to draw throughout the entire movie. There's a specific line in there that they talk about the oracle having unclouded intuition, and when they thank Pele for bringing in all of his visitors, the elders say, thank you for your unclouded gift and things like that. There's also a theory that Pele, because he is the oracle, actually pre-planned Danny's sister's suicide and the murder of her parents. Interesting. How does that one play out? Um, so basically, Pele had, like, he can see the future and he knew that Danny was meant to be there. And so he made it happen by killing off the people who would stop her from going. Because think about it if you know you have a sister at home who has a mental disorder and, you know, you have to be in close proximity because you have to be able to check on her. And, you know, when she fights with her parents, it gets bad. That stops people from doing things because you have that constant, like, caregiver mentality. But if they're Mm -hmm. not there, she had nothing to stop her from going. And we see this also when you see them first walk into Harga, everyone is greeted, but they specifically tell Danny, welcome home. Like they already were expecting her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that was very very interesting and it just it makes me have a different take on Pele and I hope that he didn't plan that because I do kind of love Pele and Danny together Pele is literally the part about this movie that I love the most like I just think he's so sweet and inviting and like he draws her for her birthday he remembers remembers her her birthday Christian he draws her for her birthday. He like he gives her a kiss when she becomes May Queen, and it's so sweet. Oh my god, that kiss though! I was like, okay, I, I'm yeah. gonna be in a cult if I ever meet someone like that. <laughs> Little Eddie Vedder, fuck yeah, <laughs> yeah, craziness. Um, so yeah, and I did have um one honorable mention, and that is a song that I couldn't find. Like I looked on every single Reddit I could. I researched everything. There is a song that Krillick did not produce for the movie, and it is used in the Maypole dance off, if you will. It is played on these very traditional Swedish instruments, and nobody can find the name of it. So I title it the Maypole song. <laughs> Wait, so was it not on the soundtrack? Nope. It's not included on the soundtrack. I'm including it as my honorable mention because of that. I didn't feel like it was fair to include it if I couldn't give any information and it's not on the actual soundtrack. That's weird because isn't that like a really important scene? Yes, but there's an overlap of one of Krillick's songs and that's why they have on the score. It's only Krillick's music on the score. Well, my thinking was, and again, a lot of other people's thinking is that it's such an old folky traditional song that they, oh. there is no way to credit it. Yeah, kind of like the original, I guess, like if you look back at like those original like fables or, you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, so that's my honorable mention. And that is it for Midsommar. 
Yay! I'm so sorry, friends, if I didn't do a good job. I did have a a great time enjoying this. I mean, um, researching all of these songs on the score because it is so different. Because then you really do have to focus a hundred percent on the music because you don't have like all the covers and all the band background information and like the inspiration because it's typically the song was written for the movie. Mm-hmm. So there, that's a little bit harder. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed looking at this from a different perspective. And I, I told Misa that she's a badass bitch for covering these all the time. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> Why are you whispering? Like no one's allowed to hear you say bitch. <laughs> oh, was I whispering? I wasn't trying to. I'm sorry. You, you kind of sounded hesitant. You were like, I told Misa she was a badass bitch. Like, like you're talking. I told her she was a, for a second of all i have only done two scores and one of them was really really recent so i'm i'm still learning too this yeah you're right though they are very challenging but that's why that's kind of the fun in it is like all right let's see what i can find with this one because it's so so specifically for this movie Mm mm-hmm but no, I think you did amazing. I think you, I think it, you definitely know your music terminology for sure. Thank you. I like listened to these songs a million times. So like <laughs> I really, really listened and I did like, I'm like Misa said, like just the amount of research that you had to do. Like I have like 30 sites that I looked up and went to, to try to find the correct terminology and to really make sure that I captured because I, I want to make sure I do you guys justice. So I, I tried, guys. So I hope you enjoy, and I can't wait to hear about Misa's pick. Uh, before we move to mine, there is one tiny fun fact that I I was wondering if you were going to mention about Midsummer. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Danny's bed sheets are the shining carpet pattern. Oh my god, I do have that in my notes. <laughs> I was like, is she going to mention that? Because that's actually really, I actually like that little reference. Yes, I do like that. There, um, And that's actually one of Ari's favorite movies. Oh, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Because The Shining is another slow burn. Uh-huh. Yep, it's that style. It is that and style. It, uh, shine, and we talked about this. The Shining is another film that I don't consider horror. It's way more suspense, drama, thriller first with horrifying images and elements. 100% agree. Yay! Yeah, I think, oh, your first score, I think it went really well. I think you should be proud of yourself. Thank you for your positive feedback. So you hadn't seen my movie before I picked it, right? No, because I'm a pussy. Oh my gosh, you're not. (laughs) I am, with certain things. (laughs) Yeah, this is another thing we talked about. We have very, very different, we both have a real love and appreciation for horror, but we both, have a liking for very different types of horror Mm -hmm. like you can do the gore thing which I think if you didn't have a a a fear of clowns you probably you might enjoy the gore of of terrifier but again there was no plot to that film so I wouldn't sick you on that um yeah but I I it's not that I don't love a psychological thriller suspense with horror elements movie I do it's just some of them resonate with me and then some of them don't. You know, you like some foods, you don't like other foods. You mm-hmm. like some music, you, like it's the same shit. So uh, movies like that tend to be hit or miss with me. 
Um, Hereditary was a hard miss. Midsummer, I would watch again. Hereditary, I don't ever want to watch again. Uh, Hereditary is not my favorite, not going to lie. Um, there are elements of that movie that I was like, what the fuck? But I do know that it's, it's a stark um, difference between those films. And typically people who do like Midsommar do not like Hereditary. And it's the same the other way. See, that's interesting because on, I, on my end, I know we hear a hundred different opinions a day, but on my end, the, all the feedback I hear is like people love Ari Aster. People love both films. They prefer one over the other typically, mm-hmm. but they, they love them both. They praise them both. They recommend both of them. And I'm like, why am I listening to you? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think he has a really great style. Mm-hmm. I think his, his writing is good. I, I don't, there's just something about the amalgam of it all that, that doesn't hit with me necessarily, but I'm not saying that they're, I will never say that they are bad movies. They're not cinematically. They are very aesthetically pleasing, but um, yes. as far as the movie as a whole, it's, it's, it's not something I'm going to buy and put on my shelf and watch randomly. Agreed. And please don't think that that's what I mean when I say, like, I know you know this, but, like, people listening, I may watch a movie or try to watch a movie, and I can appreciate it, but I'm not going to go out and buy it mm-hmm. because I just don't prefer that kind of movie. Does that make sense? Like, I can still very much appreciate it, but it's it's not going to be like, oh, my God, I have to watch this movie and buy it and own it on DVD, Blu-ray, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. I No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Like, some, some movies you love enough to own and, you know, have in your life, and then some movies you, it, you watched it at a time in your life, and you were like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> yes, 100% agreed. I'm glad you watched my movie because I I had a feeling I was like okay she's I think she's going to like some of these. <laughs> Guys, it took me for fucking ever to pick a film for mm-hmm. our third spooky season week. I almost told Frankie that we needed to cut out a week of spooky season because I couldn't think of a film to do. And um I I made a list of movies that I liked that I hadn't seen in a while that I needed to like revamp in my mind and re-listen to their soundtracks I even listed movies that I haven't seen at all because I was like hey maybe they'll have a soundtrack um so it I went through quite a list of movies and I rewatched hours of film trying to decide on one and I eventually came to this one which it was in the back of my mind for a really long time and the reason it didn't come to to my mind immediately is because when I initially saw it, I really wasn't a big fan of this film. Oh, okay. It is a sequel. And at the time that I saw this sequel, I, I actually really loved and preferred the first one. And the reasons I didn't like the sequel is because it was so different from the first one. I thought that it had lost touch with a lot of the methods of horror that worked and some of the devices used. I felt like the sequel was a lot more in your face, whereas the first one was a lot slower, a lot more suspenseful, you know, way fewer jump scares, but still really effective horror. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but then I went ahead and rewatched this movie that I ended up choosing, and I realized, like, 
I think not only because my my appreciation for horror has only gotten greater, but because I've you know I've taken some time away from this film since I first saw it, and now I've watched it again and I could really appreciate it for what it is. And so now I find that I actually really like this film. I still like the first one better, but this one is still a lot of fun to watch. And one thing that I do know that I said when I first saw it that I maintain to this day is that I think the soundtrack is better than the movie, but the movie is still really good. And so the movie that I chose is The Strangers Pray at Night. Dun, dun, dun. So you only recently watched this. Yes. So again, we const- I feel like we just constantly talk about this with the uh, differences in in movies, um, I very specifically remember watching the first Strangers in theaters, and then again, um, and it is not my favorite. Um, again, I, I, <laughs> how do I explain this? Um, I do not like scary movies or horror movies that I feel could actually happen to me. Mm-hmm. And um, this movie very much makes me think of my family lake house. It's kind of secluded. Um, and there's like never really good service out there. And this movie just like really made me paranoid and low-key terrified. Now, this one, I will say, was a little bit easier for me to watch. I did still get scared. Um, There was some screaming just because I do scare a little easily with things like that, like with that kind of jump scare thing or like that, you know, um, like you weren't expecting it and then you like really jump. Um, I am notorious for, like seriously, the other day I walked into my room and my sister happened to be walking out and I literally like threw everything out of my hands because it just scared me. Um, and so that was funny, but I did really, I mean, it wasn't a bad movie. Um, I definitely think I, I, even though I don't prefer the first one, I still liked the first one better, I guess, honestly, kind of for more of the, the script, if you will. Like, I feel like the script was a little bit meatier in the first one. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I will say there was a scene in particular that I did thoroughly enjoy, um, and I'm hoping you're going to talk about it. We shall see. So, the movie I chose, once again, is The Strangers Pray at Night from 2018, directed by Johannes Roberts, and it stars Christina Hendricks as Cindy, the mom, Martin Henderson as Mike, the dad, Lewis Pullman as Luke, and Bailey Madison as Kinsey. Now, out of this whole cast, like, I I know this is, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I haven't watched Mad Men. So the only person from this cast that I was familiar with at the time that I watched it was Bailey Madison, because I feel like she's been in so much since she was a kid. She was the little sister in Bridge to Terabithia. Mm-hmm. And do you do you remember the episode of SVU where Joan Cusack, like her daughter, was kidnapped, and so they replaced her with a with an orphan, and they made her look exactly like her? Oh my God! Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's her. 
It is her. Did you recognize her? No, I'm going to be honest. I didn't even realize that was her. I'm actually looking at her photos right now. She is so much older. I remember thinking there was some movies that she was in um, when she was younger. And I was like, oh, my God, this child is so annoying. Um, Brothers. Probably that one. She's, yeah, she aged really well. I didn't even realize that was her, Misa. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm uh-huh. So I've seen her in quite, she's been in quite a few things. And so, like, I'm, that she's one of the reasons why this movie kind of misses with me is because I'm, I, I feel like I've only ever seen her play a whiny little crying brat. Yes. <laughs> and then in this film, she's supposedly like this rebel who smokes cigarettes and listens to whatever shirt she's I can't remember what shirt she's wearing, but it's a, I think it's the Ramones, like a typical rock shirt. I think so, yeah. And like But it's almost like one of those fake shirts. Like I bet they can't even name a Ramones song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I just in this film she's supposed to play like this rebellious girl who's getting sent to boarding school, but I never ever, no matter how many times I watch this, I never get the impression that she's actually a bad kid. She just looks like a girl who picked picked out a bunch of clothes that she thought looked cool. And like, she's just kind of trying to be standoffish because she's a teenager, but she's actually probably a really good kid who's smart. Oh, yeah. So I'm... Can relate. Really. <laughs> so I'm not terribly crazy about her character, and that's one of the reasons why this movie kind of loses points with me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also not a big fan of movies where, like, the main white girl cries the whole time, and that's kind of what she does. Yeah. So it's yeah. it gets it I'm, gets old. I agree. However, like, I can't even believe I didn't put those two together. I feel so stupid right now. She does look really, I mean, like, she still has the same face, but it's kind of like, she's one of those people who, like, you saw her as a kid in a movie, and you thought she would just always be a kid in movies. <laughs> yes, like, I'm like, wait, you grew up? When did that happen? Um, But also, I feel like when she was younger, she kind of had this weird, like, cadence with her speech. Like, she didn't have a lisp, but it was, like, a very um particular way of speaking, right? Do you remember that? Like, yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, I think she made maybe she had some speech therapy or something or other because she's an actress. So Yes, of course. So now um that may be why I just like totally over my head, but yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's her. So that's our core cast uh aside from the strangers themselves. Before I move on, some of the sources that I used for my research on this movie and its soundtrack include Loudersound.com, Making the Movies channel on YouTube, LRM Online on YouTube, IMDb, Wikipedia, Found Flicks on YouTube, SecondhandSongs.com, SouthBurnettTimes.com, People.com, and Spotify Behind the Lyrics. Love it. Okay, so I mean, so like I said, like I wasn't a terribly big fan of this movie at first, but now that I've rewatched it again, and in this, I guess, current mindset, and you know, after a few years of letting it appreciate a bit, like I, I do actually really like it. It is enjoyable, and I realized how little I remembered about mm-hmm. it. So that was kind of fun to rewatch because it's kind of like watching it again for the first time. So you kind of forget where the scary moments are, so you get scared all over yeah, again. Yeah, that that is fun, kind of. 
(laughs) (laughs) for some of us. Um, And one thing that this movie is very, how it differs from its predecessor is that it's much quicker paced. There are probably 10 times as many more scares. It relies a little less on suspense, but which is okay because I think that this is a sequel that can really stand on its own. I completely agree. I don't really feel like you have to watch the first one at all, which I think is why they did go ahead and name it The Strangers Pray at Night instead of like The Strangers 2. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that they they chose specifically not to use a number because it was kind of like a you don't necessarily have to have seen the first one. You should you can still see this one and and it'll it'll still mm-hmm. work, which it does. And I think that another one of the diff- main differences that initially bothered me, but now that now again, I actually kind of like about it. I think one of the more terrifying aspects about the murders in part one is that they're slow and they're methodic and they want to take their time. But in this one, they're way more determined. They're relentless. Like, yeah. And at the end of part one... When you remember the end of part one, Pinup Girl says it'll be easier next time. And so you have to consider that 10 years have passed. And so you have to imagine that they've committed quite a few home invasions by now. And they've gotten more comfortable with it, as you can see from this movie. Yes, it's quite obvious. The music is also really different in this one. The first one is kind of like, it's got some folky songs in it. And there isn't nearly as much to the soundtrack. But this sequel has a lot of 80s synth pop, Mm -hmm. and I just, I love all of it. I'm a fan. (laughs) So with that being said, we'll go into our movie, and our opening credits begin with Kids in America by Kim Wilde. And then the song cuts off and we are on a dark road and it's in a trailer park. And then in the way distance, we see an old beat up familiar looking truck rounding the corner. And even though we're far away, we can hear that kids in America is blasting from the stereo. So the truck is driving super slow And then we cut to the inside of a trailer where an elderly couple are sleeping. And then we hear a knock. And the elderly woman wakes up and she gets up. She looks out the window and she sees the truck and it's parked outside, no lights on, nobody inside, but the song is still blasting loudly. And so she kind of like makes sure that the door is locked on her trailer. And then as she turns around, she realizes the knocking is coming from inside. And Dollface, who is one of the strangers, she's the blonde one. She's the one standing in the kitchen. And the woman is just like, who are you? Why are you in my house? And then we kind of cut away from that. And then we we don't see any actual killing, but next thing you know, Dollface is crawling into the bed with the old man after she has presumably killed the old woman. Yeah, sorry, I have chills. 
<laughs> it's yeah it's this makes me sad it makes me sad when old people die in movies yeah it was a uh, I was like oh like no yeah yeah I mean at least the dog was okay like they're old and feeble <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly they couldn't they couldn't defend themselves right I don't feel like it was a fair fight Dolphin. It really wasn't. It really wasn't. And if it wasn't for this awesome song that plays, I wouldn't have chosen uh, to talk about this scene. Kids in America by Kim Wilde played during this opening, which it, it was, I can't even articulate like how excited I get when this movie opens and you just hear that funky keyboard. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, ooh, like immediately intrigued because you're already entering this completely different atmosphere than the first movie presented you with. Yeah, it's very different from the first. Um, from what I remember, I'm not going to lie, I haven't seen that one in a while either, but from what I do remember, <laughs> it's a very different opening. Yeah, yeah. So the song Kids in America by Kim Wilde was released on January 26th, 1981 in the UK and then eventually was released in the U.S. the following year. The song was featured on Kim Wilde's album entitled Kim Wilde. Front woman Kim Wilde's music career began with her family. Her father is a man named Marty Wilde, award-winning songwriter, and because he accidentally double-booked himself one day in a studio, he left the studio to Kim's brother, Ricky. So Ricky went on to create a few demos, and Kim sang the backup vocals on some of them. And with that, her foot was in the door uh, when it was suggested that she team up with some of the well-known songwriters at the time, Ricky was against it, and he insisted that he could write a song for Kim on his own. So Kim recalls that Ricky was writing Kids in America because she could hear him in his room messing with the sounds on the keyboard. <laughs> and the one that annoyed her the most ended up being the intro to this song. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> So at the time he wrote this song, Ricky Wilde was a fan of Ultravox, Gary Newman, Sex Pistols, The Clash, and Kraftwerk, to name a few. Once the backing track was done, Ricky played it for their father, who then wrote the lyrics for the song. And Kim is quoted as saying that her father's lyrics describe a fantasy, quote, this idea of everything being better in America, end quote and how his generation believed that that was true. She says, everyone was going to drive-in movies and drinking milkshakes and having hamburgers in America. We weren't doing things like that in the UK. So this song, I mean, it, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but it, it's very much glamorizing uh, an American lifestyle seen through the rose-tinted glasses of an outsider. I agree with that description of the song. Yeah, yeah. First time I ever heard this song, it was actually the cover by the Muffs because it opens the movie Clueless. It does? Yeah. Oh my god, I need to rewatch Clueless. I don't remember that. Oh my gosh, Clueless has. I think Clueless is going to be another one that we have to do together because it has so much fucking music. But yeah, this oh this cover, it was covered by the Muffs uh, and it was featured in Clueless. Awesome. This song. The original by Kim Wilde reached number one on the weekly charts in Finland and South Africa. Johannes Roberts, director of The Strangers Pray at Night, he says that he likes this song for the beginning of the film because it really sets the tone. I think I really agree with because uh, when you go back and listen, 
those keyboards really do sound spooky. Like I was kind of surprised. I hadn't heard this original track in a really long time. I'm so accustomed to the cover by the Muffs. And so when I first watched this movie and I realized like, oh yeah, that was Kids in America. I wondered like, what did they add at the beginning? Because you know how sometimes movies will add something to the music or the soundtrack uh, that wasn't part of the original track. Yes. For the, for the sake of the aura. Mm-hmm. And so I was so convinced. I was like, oh, what did they add there? And it turns out like that's exactly how the original track sounds. And so it's kind of perfect to open a scary movie with. But then the lyrics are so fun and superficial that I think it's a perfect tone to set for a movie like this where it's kind of scary, but also kind of hilarious and fun and whimsical at the same time. I love it. I love a description of that. Yeah, I'm like dying to listen to it now. (laughs) In addition to the Muffs and the cover that they did of Kids in America, Dave Grohl did a recording of this song in 1991. And it can be found on Songs from the Laundry Room EP, which Songs from the Laundry Room, that came out a few years ago on Record Store Day. And it's just a bunch of um, rough cut kind of first draft, if you will, tracks from the first Foo Fighter record. Oh. Yeah. It's it's rough. <laughs> um, so in addition to them, the uh, Tiffany has also covered this song as well as the Donna's Kids Bop. And apparently the Jonas Brothers have taken this song and reworked it. Really? Yeah, and then also they, the cast of Riverdale covered this on an episode. I actually do remember watching that episode. I I kind of loved when they did singing stuff on that show. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I read. I I apparently did not write down any details. I wrote Jonas Brothers question mark. (laughs) I I love it. Because I think when I was, like, when I was on secondhand songs or whatever, Jonas Brothers was listed as someone who covered this, but they didn't call it Kids in America. So that, that, that's what makes me think like, oh, they must have reworked it. Maybe they sampled it. Oh, okay. 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 That makes sense. So I'm, I'm, I'll look a little further into that. And if, if such a thing does exist, I will post it on the blog. <laughs> Gosh, I'm excited. So the movie has begun. And After that opening sequence, we meet the family. We have the mom, Cindy, dad, Mike, brother, Luke, and sister, Kinsey. And Kinsey's the youngest. She's the rebellious one, if you will. And she's being sent to boarding school because she's so rebellious and she smokes cigarettes and she wears cut-off shirts. And (laughs) it's just ridiculous. Anyway, sorry. I'm not making fun. Um... (laughs) So it's it's very evident that, like, her and her brother don't really get along. Like, she's just kind of the bratty little sister. And he's he's basically tells her to her face, like, you're the reason mom and dad are going broke because they're sending you to boarding school. Right. So the family is basically going to take a trip down to Gatlin Lake where their uncle and aunt run the trailer park. And so they're going to go visit them before Kenzie goes off to boarding school. But by the time they get there, it's already really late and the entire trailer park is completely empty because everyone is gone after Labor Day. So the only people who are supposed to be left 
are Uncle Marv and his wife, who, by the way, are the elderly couple from the beginning. So Cindy gets a key from the main office and they find their trailer. It's number 47. And so they get kind of settled in. And as they're kind of like looking around and getting to know the trailer, they get a knock on the door. We don't see her face, but it's very obviously the blonde girl without her mask. And all we can see is like the outline of her hair and everything else is just shadowy dark. And Cindy answers the door and the blonde girl asks a very familiar question. Is Tamara home? And they're like, you have the wrong trailer. And she's like, okay. And she runs off and that's it. And so they're just kind of like, okay, that's weird. They shrug it off, which absolutely not. Get the fuck out of there. <laughs> that's another thing about this movie. They make some stupid-ass decisions in this film. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Especially because, I mean, first of all, they made a comment about no one being there, right? And talking about how everyone had went away for Labor Day. After Labor Day, I'm sorry. And so it's like they, they noticeably knew that no one else was there. And, you know, then all of a sudden there's someone knocking. No, that's awkward and very, very high, just highly suspect. Highly suspect. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I would have been out of there so fucking fast. But, mm-hmm. but horror movie stuff. So they of stay. Course. <laughs> of course. But, but that in turn, that also kind of, that's another thing that makes this movie so enjoyable is that like, their decisions are so stupid that it's it's funny to laugh at their stupid because it's like oh girl you're dumb I can't wait for you to die <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then you just kind of laugh so it's it's just great it's great to watch other people make stupid decisions when they're not real <laughs> so the dad really wants everybody to bond so he makes everyone put their phones away so all their phones are together and Kinsey's pissed of course because rebel so she runs off. And they make Luke go after her. So it's just the mom and dad at the trailer. And Luke goes after Kinsey. And when the mom and dad are alone, the blonde girl comes back and knocks. And she's like, is Tamara here? And the guy's like, you were already here. Like, are you lost? And then she leaves again. And then she just walks into the dark forest and they watch her walk away. And she stops and turns and looks at them and then keeps walking. It's so fucking creepy. It is. And that is the point when I was like, why are they not leaving? Like, go get your kids and leave. Thank you. Exactly. And so the the mom is like, where are the kids? Did they wander off? That girl creeped me out. And so they decide they're going to go look for the kids. And of course, nobody has their fucking phone because dad wanted to bond. Way to go, dad. Thanks, dad. And so, meanwhile, Luke and Kinsey are just walking around and kind of talking and whatever. And they find a trailer with the door wide open. And so she's like, oh, are you scared? So she like lures him in with her. And they kind of look around and they like they hear a noise and it's just the dog and the dog runs away. And so then they're looking around this trailer and they realize that hello has been written all over the window in red. 
and then they turn to see that something is covered with a sheet and when they uncover it it's their aunt uncle dead Mm. and it's pretty gruesome and not just dead they're gross yeah they're gross is that what made you scream yes that part (laughs) oh yeah it's it's pretty grotesque like I'm not even entirely sure what they did to this couple, but they fucked them up. That's what I don't... Yeah, it was like just completely mutilated. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Like his mouth was stretched out. Yeah, and I wonder what they did to do that. That was weird. It was gross. So then Luke and Kinsey run from the trailer. They run into mom and dad and they're like, oh, they're all cut up. They're dead. And so this is the stupid part, another stupid part. Cindy and Kinsey go back to the trailer while the men, Luke and Mike, go to check out the uncle's trailer. And it's like, your kid just told you that they're dead. You don't need to go see it. Y'all need to get in your car. (laughs) How many times did they have a chance to leave and they didn't? Like, no more splitting up. (laughs) Thank you. So then... The mom and Kinsey go back inside the trailer and they're like hugging and crying and they don't know what the fuck is going on. And then they look over and they realize that all of their phones have been smashed in and broken. And so they start freaking. So Cindy's like touching all of them, trying to get one of them to light up. Finally, one of them lights up, but they're cracked as fuck. Like they look like they were stomped on, twisted, just like mm-hmm. fucking mangled phones. And so Cindy tries to call 911, but it's just, it's a lot of static. So you really kind of get the feeling that the operator isn't hearing her at all. And so then Kinsey hears something behind her and Dollface is in the trailer with them. This is another scream moment for me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And so Kinsey, instead of being like, mom, oh my God, immediately, Kinsey just stands there in silence for a good minute before she's like, oh my God, mom. And she's not even audible. And it's like, bitch, you need to scream and run. Can you alert somebody, please? Yeah, she took way too long to react. Like I get being frozen, but she was like, her extra long processing time was ridiculous to me I was I screamed and then I was like move bitch get out the way (laughs) that's the song that should have been playing right there in the background there you go there you go but instead so Cindy and Kinsey run into the bathroom of the trailer and Dollface chases them she's got a big butcher knife and so she's trying to get in the door which they've locked and she's trying to unlock it but she can't And so then everything gets really quiet. And Cindy is like, leave us alone. And we hear some shuffling in the trailer. And then we hear that Dollface has presumably put on some music. Because next thing we know, in the next room, we hear hear it very faintly. But then it becomes very clear later that she is playing Live It Up by Mental As Anything. As soon as the song starts playing and they realize that she's kind of fucking with them, Cindy realizes that there's a skylight in the bathroom. And so we see from the outside, a, like an aerial shot from the outside. She's pointing at it. She's telling Kinsey to climb up and out of it. And as they're doing this, Dollface just 
bashes into this fucking trailer mm-hmm. door. Like nothing, like the fucking shining, like an axe. Like she just punches through this door and she gets it. She doesn't get it open, but she gets in. And so as Kinsey's like crawling out and Cindy's like telling her to go and to run, Dollface comes up behind Cindy and stabs her and kills her in front of her daughter. just sad like that was hard for me to watch it was really sad it's it's sad for multiple her mother's love yes yes she sacrificed herself so her daughter could get away and plus it's christina hendrix yeah she's so beautiful she really is she's gorgeous and this also just made me feel like um sad for kenzie because they had a really rough start it was obvious that like Kenzie just really felt like her family thought of her as like fuck up you know um the bad child whatever for smoking my gosh (laughs) um and I just feel like that's going to be something just that really haunts her yeah yeah and she even mentions later like mom's dead because of me we wouldn't even be here if I wasn't such a fuck up like Mm Because she knows that they're taking this trip because it will be their last one as a family before she's sent off. And so you're right. She's going to carry this guilt. And the way she was just kind of like really shitty and she was put offish with her parents. And then like those are going to be some of her last memories with them. It's a sad thing. And the way she just, I mean, Dollface stabs her like nothing. Yeah. Completely emotionless, of course. And with that creepy Like butter. (laughs) (laughs) And so Kinsey is just on the roof of the trailer and she watches her mom get murdered and she's like screaming. And then finally, like she jumps down and she runs away. I had not heard this song before this movie and I really adore this song. (laughs) It makes me happy. (laughs) You're so cute. Um, What I love is that there's a very fitting lyric during this really hectic scene. Because the song starts up, so we hear it from the beginning to about two minutes in. And so just as the camera angle ends up as the exterior aerial shot and Cindy is telling Kinsey to climb up, the lyrics of the song say, I can't believe you're alone in here. Let me warm your hands against the cold. And I just thought it was so fitting because it's like, yeah, man, they basically left you defenseless in here alone. And what's a little kind of what's kind of creepy about it is that later on, when the dad and Luke find Cindy's body, Dollface has made handprints and blood all over the walls and the mirror. She's a creepy one. Yeah, yeah, she's fucking psychotic. So the song "Live It Up" by Mental as Anything was playing during that scene. Mental as Anything, for those who don't know, is an Australian band who first released this song in Australia, May 1985. It was featured on their album Fundamental, aka Fundamental as Anything, which was released March 1st, 1985. Live It Up would go on to be released in Europe and the US within the following two years. Greedy Smith, singer and keyboardist, wrote the song and openly admits that he did not go into it thinking that it would be a success. He says it took two years to perfect the song. 
Members of Mental As Anything at the time of the song's recording were Martin Plaza on vocals and guitar, Reedy Smith on vocals, keyboard, and harmonica, Peg Mombasa on guitar and vocals, Peter O'Doherty on bass, guitar, and vocals, Wayne DeLise on drums, with additional musicians Martin Armiger, Mary Bradfield Taylor, Rick Chadwick, Sandy Chick, Andrew Ferris, and Mark Kennedy. So quite a few people made this tune happen. Yeah, that's a lot of people. (laughs) So Mental As Anything are an Australian new wave pop rock band founded in 1976. Their name is Australian slang from the late 70s, and it means crazy, outlandish, having extreme fun, or going off. Though they've been through multiple lineup changes, the band is still active. Oh, I love when bands are still active after a while. Yeah. I really like this song. It's actually really sweet and comforting. When when you take away the context that it was now put in with all the murder and stuff, um, <laughs> you actually get a really sweet song. And like I, I looked at the music video and... I, I love the music video. It makes me smile because it's like it's like the band and the singer are performing in kind of like it looks like a very typical uh, like 80s music video diner where there's no walls, but you see like boots and big white space. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just so, oh, it's just so 80s. And the singer seems so charming. And it's it's a song about trying to cheer you up. Because he's saying like, oh, don't cry no more. Just come to my place and live it up. And I think that that's like a really sweet message. That like, oh, don't worry about whatever is getting you down. Like, I will cheer you up. Like, let we'll live it up. And I don't know, I just, I think that's cute and just all of it works. And then throughout the music video, (laughs) there's like really weird random shots of this blonde girl, like making diner food, like milkshakes and (laughs) like sandwiches. Cute. Okay. I can't wait to see this up on the blog. (laughs) (laughs) It is the perfect music video. And of course, of course it ends with the singer dancing with a hound dog oh of course so it's just perfection 100 percent all around (laughs) (laughs) so i love this song and even though like even though this really is a sad scene and i feel sad for the characters i can't help but kind of you know dance a little because it's such a groove i like this song a lot (laughs) i can't stop smiling i love it so much (laughs) i can tell that you're smiling we can hear it in your voice. It, it just, it makes, this song makes me feel warm and comforted. Because, like, isn't that all you want to hear? It's like, when you're just feeling really shitty and all you want to do is cry, isn't that all you need to know is that someone wants to suddenly be in your company and cheer you up? Yes, that's exactly what you want. Yeah, so that's, it's kind of like that in song form because it's so sweet. And the music video just makes it even better. I'm I'm really ready to see this. <laughs> I will post it on the blog, and you guys are going to fall in love with it, and you'll be like, Misa was right. I feel great. <laughs> While all that stuff was happening, Luke and Mike were in the other trailer checking out the bodies, I guess, because Mike needed to see for sure, and so he has, like, an emotional response, of course. And then when they're about to leave to call the cops – 
they hear that someone is throwing things at the trailer and bashing the windows in and shit. And they're like, what the fuck is that? And they look outside and it's the man with the mask. And so if you've seen part one, you know, the man in the mask is basically like a, it looks like a little potato bag, like a potato sack mask. Yeah, it, it makes, it scares me. It looks a lot like the, the mask from the town that dreaded sundown, only with like eye holes. And it isn't, is it a mouth hole or is it drawn on? I thought it was a hole. Um, whatever it is, it scares me. And I don't know why. I feel like it's just like the simplicity of it. Oh, it is drawn on. It is? How f- well, in the first one it was. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I could have sworn that it was an actual hole. Let me see here. Yeah, it looks drawn on. Anyway, whatever. Um, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. And so, because all these masks are so expressionless, and these strangers, of course, have no motive. So this is, like, doubly horrifying. The man in the mask is standing outside. And so Mike finds a gun, and he's like, you have five seconds to leave. And I'm like, no, mother, you fucking start shooting. He has an axe, and he killed your uncle. You don't give him five seconds. Exactly. Shoot. (laughs) Oh, that made me mad. And so, of course, like, the man in the mask disappears. Like all horror movie villains do. They always do. They're so sneaky and quiet. They're like ninjas. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And or or with invisibility powers. Oh my gosh. Yes. Like can you imagine playing a game of hide and seek? Cheaters. I would never. First of all, I would cry. But. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like okay, we're just playing a game, guys. Like you can't kill me. Mm-hmm. This isn't for realsies. This isn't for life. This is just for fun. Just for fun. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it makes me feel like I could never be a murderer or a serial killer because you know when you're younger and you try to like sneak into the kitchen to like heat something up in the microwave. Mm-hmm. That's when I feel like I was the loudest. Like every <laughs> sound, I couldn't even walk quietly, or like my breathing was just obnoxiously loud for some reason at that time and it's like every serial killer in the history of man is a ninja yeah so stealthy (laughs) yes yeah yeah and so naturally that's exactly what the man in the mask does Mm -hmm. he just kind of disappears and they lose track of him and so they find Cindy dead and this is a really sad scene too but it's very brief because they're like okay no we need to go find your sister now so they get in the truck and they're looking for Kinsey. And next thing they know, they have a cinder block crash into their windshield. And when they and then they lose control of the truck and they crash into a trailer. And the dad is impaled by some of the wood on the patio of the trailer. And it's oh, it's so bad. It's sad. And so he gives the gun to Luke and he tells Luke to go find help. And Luke takes off, and the moment he's gone, the man in the mask pops up from the shadows and kills the dad. Yeah, and the way he killed them. Super sad. During that scene, there's a song playing called Cambodia by Kim Wilde, which is one of my honorable mentions. And so then uh, we get a little further into the movie, and by now, like, Kinsey and Luke have been running from them, and they're, they hid in a trailer, but only for so long, because then the man in the mask rams the truck into the trailer, so then they're running away, 
and he tells Kinsey to hide while he goes to call for help and she doesn't want to stay where she is but he's like no you have to stay here because you know your leg because she got stabbed in the leg so he knows that she's going to move slower so he says that it'll be faster if he goes by himself so once again the characters split up (laughs) and so he runs to the office to the visitor center and he actually manages to make a call and he's trying to tell the operator where he is but once he realizes like oh it's Gatlin Lake there's no response on the phone. Mm-hmm. And then he hears noises and pinup girl, which is the older stranger with the mask with the black hair, is stalking him inside the visitor center. And so Luke ends up running around and all of a sudden all the lights go up and all these beautiful neon trees mm-hmm. surrounding the pool suddenly just like flourish with all their colors and the lights in the pool come up and then very slowly a song starts to play and it is none other than (laughs) Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Fuck yes. Guys, this is the most beautiful scene in this entire film. It really is, and it's so serene for a second. Like when Luke is first standing and like silently waiting, and you see all the pinks and the greens from those trees, and the pool is just really still, and this song is playing on like a loudspeaker. Um, it's so pretty. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's such a contrast from all of the darker, sadder colors and tones that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. It's so bright and it seems so hopeful, but then it turns really fast because... Super fast. <laughs> so Luke is out by the pool and he's just kind of looking around and there's this really like wide shot of everything and then as the music picks up, we hear Pinup Girl, and she she's running. Like, we hear her steps kind of uh, get faster and faster, and she runs up behind Luke, but he manages to turn just in time, and he whacks her in the head with a golf club. And so she gets knocked out, and he kneels over her, and he tries to take her mask off, but she grabs his hand. And so, like, there's this really quick, like, little wrestle match, and he grabs her knife, and he fucking stabs that bitch over and over and over again. And we just hear, like, the squishing and the blood splattering on his face, and he stabs that girl dead. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, an emotional, like, at first it was kind of, The first one was kind of very hesitant, and then it was like, for my mom, for my dad, for hurting my sister, like, you feel it. Even though he's not saying that, like, you feel it in the way he aggressively starts to kill this bitch. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see it on his face that, like, he didn't want to do this, but this is what he was brought to. Mm Mm-hmm. This is what he had to do. So, and of course, I'm fucking cheering because finally a character made a good decision. Yeah, and a quick decision. 
Like, Ooh. the way he smacks her with the pole, I was like, oh, shit. I had to rewind it because it happens so fast. It happens so fast. And the camera work is so beautiful because as she's running up on him, the camera zooms in really fast. So, like, you barely have enough time to catch her before she's on the ground. Yeah. It's beautifully done. I really love the way this scene is shot. And so all these neon lights are flashing, the greens and blues and reds, and you see the lights reflecting off of his face. And so he is also turning blue and then red and then green. And it's just really beautiful, bold, deep colors. Really reminds me of the opening of Suspiria, where like the lighting and the colors were so vibrant. And they took up so much of the scene. Like, it's it's just beautiful to me. And so then, after he kills her, we hear this really chilling sound. And no matter how many times I watch this movie, I still get chills when you suddenly hear the axe scraping against the pavement as the man in the mask drags it behind him, approaching Luke. But now there's only love in the dark. And so Luke sees him and Luke gets up and he's like, I killed one of yours. How's that fucking feel? Mm -hmm. And the man in the mask is not happy. And so he starts swinging and you can hear how heavy this axe is with how he's swinging. And Luke is a master at dodging this axe. Like it's like video game dodging. It's crazy. Yeah, this was creepy. And the way, like you said, the way he came in dragging the axe, I was like, oh, my God. And then Luke taunting him, I was like, oh, bad decision, bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it was so good. Like It was good. I I agree that I was just like, oh, Luke, you kind of backed yourself up into a corner here. Yeah. But I I think that, mm, I think I would have been right up there with Luke because he's so angry at this point. Yes. He's beyond angry. He's fucking just pissed and done. He's done with it all. And so the man in the mask is like swinging this axe hard trying to strike Luke. And Luke eventually rolls into the pool and he catches the axe with one swing and he pulls the masked man into the pool with them. And then they fight in the water. And this is another thing that I really adore about this scene is that the camera follows them as they they surface and they scuffle up above the water and then they also continue to fight and they get submerged below the water. And so it's kind of back and forth. The camera not only goes with them, but the music also gets muffled along Mm -hmm. with it. So every time we go underwater with them, Total Eclipse of the Heart just kind of sounds very faint, very muffled. And then it com- they come up onto the surface again, and it's loud, and it's blasting, and it's emotional again. And it's, it's so beautiful how this was done. Like, I cannot say enough good things about this scene. It's so good to watch. Even people who did not like this film admit this is the best scene in the movie. I agree. And so this is really cool, the whole fight. And so Luke eventually tries to escape, but the man stabs him in the back. 
And so the pool is slowly filling up with red and Luke is just struggling to stay afloat. And so the man in the mask eventually wanders off and he just leaves Luke to bleed and Bob in the water alone. And Bonnie Tyler's voice is still going. Yes. And he gets out like nothing. Like he got out of that pool like a master. No, I agree. The man in the mask just like disappears again. Yeah, it's like, how do you not have to kind of like jump up awkwardly and do your weird little throw your leg over the side of the pool? You know what I mean? Right, like I'm like, I I don't even, I can't even really remember him walking out. Like I know he, uh, we see him exit the pool kind of, or at least exit the screen. But I think I'm just so fixated on Luke and the blood filling the pool that I just lose track of the man. And yeah, he just straight up disappears, just pieces out, like just leaves him to die. Mm-hmm. And that's also weird to me because I'm like, why wouldn't you just kill him right there? Like he's right there. Yeah, nope. That was uh, his stupid mistake because he let his emotions come over him. But I guess he wanted him to slowly die because I can't imagine bleeding out and then like you're going to start drowning also. I guess would be my mindset. You're right. I think, yeah, he probably wanted him to die slowly. And, you know, when you're bleeding in the water, you're bleeding like 10 times faster. Yes. So, yeah, you're probably right. I think he wanted it to be like slow so he would suffer because I'm pretty sure the man in the mask and the pinup girl were like a thing. That would make sense. I always thought that. I always kind of thought they were a couple somehow. <laughs> Yeah, that, I can definitely see that. And that would be why he's just fucking pissed. Pissed. <laughs> so, throughout that entire beautiful fight scene in the pool, we were hearing Total Eclipse of the Heart by Welsh singer Bonnie Tyler. And this first appeared on her fifth album from 1983, entitled Faster Than the Speed of Night. The musicians featured on this track include Steve Buslow on bass, Jimmy Malin on percussion, Holly Sherwood, Rory Dodd, and Eric Troyer are backing vocals. Rick Derringer on guitar. He is best known as a member of the McCoys, oh, as okay. well as drummer Max Weinberg and keyboardist Roy Bittan, both of which are members of the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band. Of course they are. Super Dang, cool. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's like a mini collab between all these different musicians from different spots. So before this song came to be, Bonnie had actually recently made a few changes by leaving her record company, and she found a new manager, and then she was seeking out a producer. Her top choice was a man named Jim Steinman, songwriter and record producer for notable acts like Air Supply and Meatloaf. I've seen them! You've met them. Yes, I've met them. I have photos. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Before Bonnie was attached to this song, Jim had penned the tune for Meatloaf. Really? Can you imagine Meatloaf doing this? Oh my gosh, I really can. I can too. (laughs) My heart. Yeah, yeah. That would be pretty epic. In an interview with Playbill, Jim Steinman says that Total Eclipse of the Heart originally was titled Vampires in Love. 
and many of the lyrics play off of the bats motif from Meatloaf's first album, Bat Out of Hell. I love that. Mm -hmm. He says, if anyone listens to the lyrics, they're really like vampire lines, which, yeah, I can agree. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. So when Bonnie and Jim met to talk about music, Jim had an idea for what kind of sound he wanted to produce with Bonnie, and a few weeks later, he presented her with Total Eclipse of the Heart. He went on to admit that he didn't think it could ever become a single. He says that when he wrote it, it was just so Bonnie could show off her voice. The song went on to become Bonnie Tyler's highest charting song. It reached number one in Australia, Canada, the UK, the US, South Africa, and New Zealand. I can absolutely say. I'm surprised it didn't go like everywhere, worldwide. Yeah, I know, right? Before she was known as Bonnie Tyler, her name was Gaynor Hopkins. As she grew up, she listened to females in music like Janis Joplin and Tina Turner. When she was 17, she became a backup singer for a local club, and the manager became her husband. Because she sang most days out of the week at the club, she developed nodules, which is a growth of abnormal tissue. Mm-hmm. And so she had to have throat surgery, but it only impacted her voice in a positive way. And it is the voice we've all come yes. to know and love. Yes, that kind of very raspy, deep, but can still belt out those notes. Yes, exactly. And can we talk about the music video for this? Oh my gosh. <laughs> They're like in the castle. What in the fucking fuck did I just watch? They all have like glowing eyes. Dude, okay, there is a lot of 80s ass imagery in this video, guys. There are candles, doves, a fake window, flowing fabrics, a wind machine, mirrors. I, in particular... I'm partial to the door with no walls. <laughs> I love I love when the when people in music videos use the door. It's just a door with a frame and they just walk through the door even though there's I love those because I love to think of like the first person who ever featured it, whoever thought to have it, like, hey man, That's we're gonna get man. just a door and people are gonna love it because doors need walls. Ha ha ha. Like, can you think about how that conversation went? Like, yeah, we're going to need a door. Just a door. Just a door. No walls. I love it. It's just so cheesy. I love it. It absolutely is. It's awesome. So I will post that glorious video on the blog. And um, before I wrap up that segment, some some of the artists who have covered Total Eclipse of the Heart include the Glee cast, Tiffany and Tori Amos. Oh, I haven't heard her cover. Hers is a live one. I actually, I thought it was pretty cool. So, because it's cool because I think she was doing it on piano and she doesn't tell you what the song was until like it starts up those chords and then every, you can hear the crowd realize what it is and they just go fucking insane. Of course they do. This is like one of, this is okay, first of all, this is like a karaoke song which I actually had the privilege of um, 
seeing just this amateur man who had the most amazing beard. He did a cover of this when we were on our cruise. And I would honestly bet money that he might be able to sing this song better than Bonnie herself. I was blown away. Wow, that's awesome. Blown away by his talent. I wonder if he's on YouTube. I don't know. I'm going to have to find him. Because now I want to make sure that we can, like, maybe tag him or post him. Because, I mean, this was, like, eight years ago, and I still have never forgotten it. This is definitely a karaoke dream, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm. Director Johannes Roberts says that they knew when they did this movie that they wanted to have an 80s song play during the pool scene. And Johannes is actually a really big fan of Jim Steinman. So... That was it was really easy for him to narrow down what kind of music and sound he wanted for this scene. I can absolutely see that. And it's very fitting. Like I know it's a it's a very pretty song, but um this whole kind of trailer motel park thingy has very eighty vibes. Great song. Great song. Um I'm not gonna lie, I found myself getting really emotional when I listened to this song recently. It's an emotional song. It really is. I, um, this song, up until recently, this song really has kind of become a bit of a spoof of itself. Like, when I was growing up, I only ever saw it in media where they would put it in a really comical, kind of cheesy context. Kind of like how I Will Always Love You plays during, like, really silly, dramatic moments and stuff. Ah, yes. <laughs> and so that, that, this song is very much like that. And the first time I ever heard this song was when I watched Urban Legend and the character in the beginning, Michelle, is singing it, but she's singing it really badly. Yes, I love that movie. Yeah, that movie's fun. And so that's the first time I ever heard this song. And she's like, it's Bonnie Tyler on the radio, but she's like, she's singing it in the car and she's like really bad at singing it (laughs) which I always thought was kind of ironic because that's Natalie Wood's daughter and Natalie Wood was known to not be able to sing oh I wonder if it passes down so I always kind of saw it at stuff like that or like you know just very cartoony comical you never really saw it in a in a in a serious context and so because of that I don't think I ever really took the song seriously, but as I was listening to this soundtrack and I had it on loop and I ended up, um, I can't remember what I was doing, but I ran some errands and I ended up getting stuck in traffic and I was listening to this soundtrack in my car and I kind of like, I got stuck in traffic and I looked over and the old movie theater that I used to go to growing up with my mom was just sitting there and it's all boarded up now. And this song was playing, and I just started crying. <laughs> it was so bizarre, and I was like, I was like really, really listening to the lyrics for the first time ever, and I was like, damn, like this really is deep. Like, once upon a time, I was falling in love. Now I'm only falling apart. 
Like, who hasn't felt that? Uh, yeah, this song is definitely one that I can't listen to without crying, ever. Since I was, like, seven. It's so sad. <laughs> like, it, man, it really, really makes you reflect. Like, you know that quote, I've, I've said it before, like, everyone's going to hear a song differently because of their experiences and perspectives. Mm-hmm. But man, like, to me, like, this is one of those songs, like, sometimes it, sometimes a song sits in the background of your life until one day you really hear it. Yeah, it's like it, um, like you said, like, your experiences totally shape the way you hear it, and it's like almost the song completely morphs into something different. Like you've heard it your entire life, but you never quite truly got it until you were in that emotional state. Right. Or like a certain state of mind Mm -hmm. or you had a certain experience. Mm -hmm. And like it could have been a song that you hated at first and then suddenly you realized what it meant because you understood it on another level. Yes, that has happened many a time. Yeah, and that, this song has a completely new meaning to me. Like, of course, I've seen it in a a million different contexts, but this one, I feel, the pool fight is probably one of the more memorable moments that it's been a part of to me. And it's just got, it's got some really, really impactful lyrics. I mean, like, Once upon a time, there was light in my life. Now there's only love in the dark. Fuck, you know? Fuck. (laughs) Yeah, that line is the one that really makes me cry. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, moving on. Um, Luke is bleeding in the pool. And... We hear like a really muffled Kinsey and she's calling his name and she pulls him out of the pool and he is bleeding pretty badly, but she manages to kind of prop him up and she's like, I'm going to go get help. So she runs off and she manages to flag down a cop. A cop is randomly driving around and she doesn't just fucking spit out the important information and he gets killed by Dollface. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's so quick. It's so quick. And so then Kenzie's trying to like get in his Jeep and the blonde girl is like chasing her with the knife and slashing at her. But then Kenzie manages to angle his shotgun at Dollface and she just fucking blasts her with this shotgun. And Dollface falls back. She's like unmasked at this point. And Kenzie's like, why are you doing this? And the blonde girl is still choking on her own blood. And she looks up and chuckles and says, why not? Psycho. Fucking crazy. And so Kinsey double taps and shoots her again and kills her. Finally a smart choice from her. Yes, finally the characters are getting smart. A little too late, but at least it finally happened. So... By now, Kinsey goes ahead and she gets in the Jeep and she's crying and she just wants to find help so she and her brother can get out of there. And so she's trying to start the Jeep, but it won't start. And in the very, very background of the scene, 
we see headlights and they get closer and bigger and closer and bigger. And then we realize that it's the truck and the man in the mask is behind the wheel and he drives up on this Jeep and he rams into the back of it. And blasting from his stereo is Making Love Out of Nothing at All by Air Supply. <laughs> so he drives up next to her and he looks at her and she's she's hit her head she's a little bloodied now she looks at him and then he drives away but he's circling around so he's gonna come up onto the side of the jeep so kinsey is trying to get this fucking jeep started he just rams into the jeep with his truck And so she manages to get out, but he's trying to back up so he can ram it again. But his bumper is stuck to the wreckage on the Jeep. Mm-hmm. And so as she's walking away and the music is intensifying, she realizes that the gas is leaking. And so she pulls out her Zippo that she used to light her edgy cigarettes with. <laughs> and... She flips on the Zippo. She looks at the man in the mask and he just looks at her. She screams and then she tosses the Zippo onto the pavement and there is a giant explosion. And you think it's the end. Yeah, and there's this really, there's this awesome fire going, and there's this really beautiful shot where, like, all you see is, like, a giant just ball of fire and then just Kinsey's, like, silhouette mm-hmm. because the fire is so bright, and she just she just looks like darkness next to it. And so she just starts walking away. She's crying. And in the background, we see the truck backs up and starts to follow her. The man in the mask is still alive. He's a ninja. He starts revving up the truck and she's running. He is relentless and he just like kind of like runs up behind her and he swerves up next to her trying to trap her until she realizes that there's a bridge. So she heads toward the bridge and it's the only bridge out of the trailer park. It's the only way she'll get to the main road. So she starts heading to the bridge and he follows her in his truck. Air supply is still blasting from the Mm -hmm. stereo. And so she falls and the truck stops and he gets out and he's all kinds of burned. And he is like, his mask has burned off a little, his hands are burned. And the, since the truck is on fire, which is really cool because it's very reminiscent of Christine, which is another great horror movie. The truck is on fire and we hear that, the air supply song is actually getting really distorted and it starts to wind down and slow because the truck is getting mangled and everything is melting inside. And that's what it sounds like. It sounds like the song is melting. Yeah. Great description of that scene, by the way. And it's, it's so effective because like, it really is. It's getting, he's getting so close. Like she's, she seems like 
helpless at this point. She seems completely trapped. And we see just how determined he is. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's ready to just end it all. Like, he's <laughs> like he's going to fucking kill her. What he realizes when he's about to come and kill her is that there are, like, shards of metal in his stomach. And so he's been impaled. And so he even, like, pulls it from his gut. But you can tell that he's in so much pain. Like, he's basically dying, and he's not going to be able to kill her before he dies. As he's approaching her, we were kind of hearing the Air Supply song wind down. So Making Love Out of Nothing at All is a power ballad by Air Supply. And it was also written by songwriter Jim Steinman. In 1983, when Air Supply released their greatest hits album, Making Love Out of Nothing at All was included on it as the brand new track. It was released in July of that year, just a month ahead of the album release. Before the song came to be, Jim Steinman wrote the main title track for a show called A Small Circle of Friends. That track would end up being reworked into the power ballad that we all know. So I'll go ahead and post that on the blog. I went ahead and listened to it. Yeah, it's very much the backbone of this song. Cool. The B-side to this song was Late Again. Air Supply was not the first choice to record this song. Steinman initially offered this song, as well as Total Eclipse of the Heart, to Meatloaf, while the Midnight at the Lost and Found album was being produced. The record company Meatloaf was working with at the time did not want to pay for the rights to the song. Uh, Steinman had previously worked with Meatloaf on his first album, Bad Out of Hell, which is one of the best-selling albums of all time. Yes. Without Meatloaf at the helm of the songs, Steinman went on to offer the songs to Air Supply and Bonnie Tyler, respectively. The musicians featured on Air Supply's track include Russell Hitchcock on lead vocals, Graham Russell on background vocals, Roy Bittan on piano and synthesizer, Larry Fast on synthesizer, Max Weinberg on drums, Steve Buslow on bass, Rick Derringer on electric guitar, Sid McGuinness on acoustic guitar, Jimmy Malin on percussion, Eric Troyer, Rory Dodd, and Holly Sherwood on backing vocals. If some of those names sounded familiar, it's because they were also the musicians who worked on Total Eclipse of the Heart. So while I was writing down all the musicians for this, I was like, wait a minute. Did I mix up the notes? Did I already write this? <laughs> so I had to go make sure. It, it very much was a lot of the same musicians that worked on both songs. So that's pretty cool. This song hit number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Fun fact. Number one was actually Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> Have fun. So that was a very good few weeks for Jim Steinman mm -hmm. that he felt accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, Bonnie Tyler would go on to eventually cover Making Love Out of Nothing at All for her 1995 album, Free Spirit. Mm. Smart. Perfect. See, that's a complete circle. Yeah, she did change a few of the lyrics, and the song goes on for 7 minutes and 49 seconds. As it should. <laughs> for those unfamiliar, Air Supply are a soft rock duo known as Graham Russell and Russell Hitchcock. Their origin story began in May 1975, when they were first just a harmony vocal group. By November 1976, they released their first single and proceeded to expand their lineup, though it changed many times. 
national tours and multiple albums would follow. Within the first few years as a group, they didn't chart much, but in 1979 onwards, songs like Lost in Love, The One That You Love, Here I Am, and Even the Nights Are Better all reached number one at some point, while many others were scattered along the rankings as well. Four albums went platinum in the U.S., one of them went double platinum, and their greatest hits album went platinum five times. Can I just tell you, like, I know I've said this before, they still put on a great concert. They have so much energy. They are amazing. They played for three and a half hours straight. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's really good to hear. Because yeah. I know, like some some musicians, as they get older, they I don't know. Some of them they seem kind of jaded, I guess, or they feel like they can do whatever they want. And some of them are just very like I guess they take advantage of their fan base. I think by just like giving them half-assed shows. Yes. I don't want to name anyone in particular, but mm -hmm. I know there are musicians out there like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it's great to hear that Air Supply is not one of those bands. And these guys have been around for fucking ever, and they look it, but they're still, like, fucking full of life. Yes, that was one of my favorite things about them. This is one of, That's one of the reasons why I chose this song, because I, I know you love them. Thank you. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> it was these two songs. <laughs> I was like, she has to cover these. That's, another, that's part of the reason why I chose this movie, because I was like, oh. Frankie's going to need to hear this soundtrack. Love it. Love it. Tidbits about this song. It was featured in the Goldbergs, season four, episode 24, as well as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Click, Dumb and Dumber, When Harry Met Lloyd. It was also in the TV show Chuck and Criminal Minds. I personally, though, and I, please guys, please write in if I was not the only one. The first time I ever heard this song, was in a Wendy's commercial. Oh, really? Do you remember this Wendy's commercial? I do not. Okay. There was a phase. This was like 1998 or so. Um, there was this phase where Wendy's commercials had like the people who were eating Wendy's were wearing the Wendy's wig with the, t with the pigtails and stuff. Uh-huh. And so there's this commercial where these two guys like they, they look like co-workers in a lunchroom and they're like oh what are you eating and the guy with the wendy's wig is like oh i'm eating the and it's like this giant burger with like double meat bacon cheese awesomeness and then the other guy's like what he's like what do you have and the other guy just has like a really sad looking like value menu looking burger and he is like oh well i have the air supply burger and he pulls the talk string, kind of like Woody in Toy Story. Mm -hmm. He pulls the string on the burger, and the burger legit sings, making love out of nothing at all. Oh, my God. You have to put this on the blog. I do not remember this commercial at all. It will be on the blog. <laughs> and it's the first thing I thought of, too, because I remember when I was a kid, I didn't know air supply was a thing. So I was like, why would someone buy it? A burger for air? Like, I thought if it's a burger, if it's an air supply burger, it's like, oh, so it can, like, give you CPR. Oh, okay. I see where your mind is. Yeah, okay. That commercial was obviously made for a very specific crowd. Yeah, like, it was, it, it reached a certain audience, and I, I was not 
it. There wasn't anyone in my house that could expose me to air supply at that age. (laughs) That is awesome. I can't wait to see it. It's funny. And it wasn't until way later that I realized they were a band. I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. (laughs) But uh, yes, that will be on the blog. And uh, one tiny little fun fact about this. Bailey Madison, who plays Kinsey, she says that this is her favorite song in the whole movie, especially because it plays at such a pivotal moment when her character Kinsey thinks that everything is going to be okay and then it's just not (laughs) okay. (laughs) The man in the mask can't even bring himself to get up and kill Kinsey. He just collapses where he is. And so we finally get to the end of the movie. Kinsey manages to flag down a truck. The man in the mask, somehow still alive, chases her one more time. And they have this nice little Texas Chainsaw Massacre homage where she jumps into the back of a truck and he tries to swing the axe at her, but she knocks him out with a baseball bat. And the movie ends with, she's actually in the hospital with Luke, who is, looks like he's on some kind of respirator. And so it looks like he's going to make it, but she's sitting there with him. And next thing we know, she hears a very familiar sound. Earlier in the movie, Dollface lured her in with a -a jack-in-a-box. And so Kinsey hears the -the jack-in-a-box again in the hospital, followed by a knock at the door. And that's where the movie ends. Ah. And I was like, no. Um, a lot of, I, I was looking at a lot of reviews, a lot of people are leaning more toward that that's just her being traumatized, they're, they're not actually alive, like, hopefully, <laughs> at least. There's no way, right? I mean. There's no fucking way. There's no fucking the way. The man in the mask, though, I feel like he is just, he's, like, unkillable, almost, he's immortal or something, I mean. Yeah, I always had this theory that the serial killers in movies, they kind of gain life when they kill. So that's what makes them like unstoppable toward the end because they've killed so many people. So they've sucked up all that life. Oh, that makes sense. You know, like each kill makes them stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. So that's the end of the movie. I do have some honorable mentions. One, Cambodia by Kim Wilde, which I mentioned before. The other one is Night Moves by Marilyn Martin. I have been looping these six songs for the past few weeks, and I have no regrets. I love every single one of these songs. I think that they are super fun. They're so deliciously 80s, and I just dig it. I dig it. I still maintain that the soundtrack is the stronger aspect between the music and the film. Mm -hmm. Um, film is still super enjoyable and you guys should definitely check it out if you have not already rewatch the first one or go watch the first one as well again they can stand alone but you would really enjoy both if you check them out they have very different styles but I think everyone can appreciate how different they are yes I agree yeah so I just have a few fun facts Johannes Roberts who directed this film says he loves to make the music a character in the film. He specifically mentioned John Carpenter and his use of music in movies, and he said that he really wanted to go for a John Carpenter vibe with this movie. Oh, I love that. Johannes is actually a really big fan of 80s music, and these are songs that are actually from his childhood. 
he said that he wanted really big, melodramatic, quote, beautiful songs with horrible torment. This movie does begin with a with some text that says based on true events. You take that with a grain of salt, guys. Even the first one said the same thing. Uh, but even the first one was very fabricated. For those of you who don't know, the first Strangers film and therefore the characters in this one were partially inspired by a few different events. One of them being the Sharon Tate murder. Mm-hmm. A lot of similarities between those murders and this film because three of the followers of Charles Manson were the ones who did the deed. And in The Strangers, there are three strangers doing all the killings. Uh, Just like with the Manson family, it is one male and two females killing everybody with zero remorse, no reason, no conscience. That in itself can be really horrifying. It's one thing, like, like you said, Frankie, it's one thing to be like terrified of horror that can actually happen in real life. But then to know that there are psychotic people like that wandering around amongst us. Yeah, it's crazy. The other real-life event that inspired the story in the first one, I believe it was the director of the first one, who, when he was a child, he was living in the middle of nowhere, and someone came and knocked on their door, and they asked for a random person who didn't live there. And later on, they found out that everyone who got a knock on the door and didn't answer had their house broken into. Oh, wow. And so that is pretty scary. And then on, in addition to that, there is also an incident referred to as the Keddie Cabin Murders. Mm-hmm. And that is also partially an event that inspired the script. As well as some people like to speculate that The Strangers is kind of a loose remake of the movie Them. So a lot of different source material went into the writing of The Strangers. I mean, I'm not trying to debunk anything. If you, if, if you prefer thinking that it's all a true story, then you go ahead. But I don't think there's any real-life event that happened just like this. this. These movies are kind of an amalgam of very mm-hmm. different incidents with all just as horrific as the last results. I agree. Like a melting pot of a bunch of different movies or a bunch of different um, things that happened in history. That does wrap up my movie, uh, Strangers Pray at Night from 2018. If you have not seen this, please go check it out. Check out the soundtrack. I will post lots of clips and audio things on the blog from this movie as well as Midsummer. Woohoo, way to go. Great choice, Nisa, great soundtrack. Yay, awesome, good things. I hope you guys enjoy this film and the soundtrack as much as I did. Oh gosh, I can't wait to see everything up on the blog, which, by the way, will be linked in our Instagram. Uh, Misa always does an amazing job of posting when everything is up on Spotify, as well as all of our other platforms, and when the amazing blog is up and ready for your viewing pleasure. Until next time, this is Frankie. And this was Misa, and we hope you enjoyed our spooky Soundtrack City Week 3 episode. Come back for our final fourth week next time. (sighs) (laughs) Creepy wind sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Night, guys.